And we're live. Welcome to another episode of the Friendly Ex-Muslim and the Two Abdullahs. Uh, today, we have the final episode of Epileptic Prophet. Although, we'll see. We might have a discussion or some other stuff coming up after. But today is going to be the last and final episode. So if you're looking for the first six parts, there's a, there's a YouTube playlist link below. You can check it out. Click below and you can get the full series. You can look it up on your favorite podcast platform. Or, of course, on YouTube. Check it out on YouTube as well. So what do we have in line for today, Abdullah Gandal? Hello. Welcome back, everybody. The finale, the last episode. We are, uh, what, 16 hours in, six parts in. And we've made it. Uh, if you've been here with us through this amazing journey, well, it's going to be a good last episode. So what are we in for today? We're going to go through about 40-ish cases of famous people ranging from all walks of life, from... Uh, kings to military rulers to sitting politicians to ex-us presidents suspected chief justice uh famous rappers movie actors musicians poets uh lots of stuff to come after that we're going to be talking about a paper by dr hassan aziz he's a muslim neurologist who wrote a paper defending muhammad's mental health and debunk that and we're going to go talk about uh some interesting things i noticed in the uh, during this presentation some interesting correlations between some uh, some points we're gonna definitely take your questions and some calls for sure uh definitely gonna get your feedback uh but with that aside uh, we're gonna get into it now so here we have the first slide uh going to start off with our first case which is going to be Karen Armstrong. Who, who is Karen Armstrong? Karen Armstrong is actually a very very famous, very well awarded, uh very well known uh author, literary expert. So, let's just quickly read on the left side uh who is she? She received an honorary degree as Doctor of Letters by Aston University. She's also got the TED Prize in 2008. On 12 May 2010, she was made the Honorary Doctor of Divinity by Queen's University. On 30th November 2011, uh, Armstrong was made an Honorary Doctor of Letters by the University of St. Andrews. On 3rd June, she was made an Honorary Doctor of Divinity by McGill University. Now, the doctors that you're getting here, uh, they're actually a step above a normal PhD. So she's a highly respected authority in in literature and then she normally uh, talks about religious things funnily enough she herself despite being such a highly uh, accomplished writer and author is also an epileptic and she's a she has a video about her interview and what she goes through so we're going to listen to the video and then we're going to try to see some correlations between muhammad and her own symptomology and see if the we can realize that maybe, you know, these people, those who do have epilepsy at times unlock a certain uh, creativity or certain power in their brain that they end up creating these uh, these amazing works. Uh, this section also needs to first focus on that uh, undoing the stigma around epilepsy where you have to understand that epileptics or schizophrenics are not just uh, people who are... Uh, they don't contribute anything to society. They're dysfunctional or anything. No, they're actually, they can function. They can create a lot of amazing things and have done a lot for people as well throughout human history. So we have to first keep that into account. You people, while going through the section, will have a completely different idea of what 
mental illness means after watching this. And hopefully that's in a good way. Um, and then before we get into this further, I just want to also elaborate that uh, this section will cover patients of varying degrees of epilepsy. So you don't have every patient like exactly the same type of epilepsy as Muhammad, because the point of this section is to show that epilepsy or mental illnesses that are normally degenerative by people can at times create uh, this misnotion, this notion that, like I said, as you see in the screen, the idea that epilepsy is a disability is so misguided. Exactly. That's what we're going to challenge today, too. Uh, uh, but with that aside, I just want to make sure that if you start nitpick each case, again, we're not looking for the exact, exact thing for each case to be exactly like Muhammad. You will see some similarities, but that's besides the point. Now, another thing is that uh, if you go online and you search famous epileptics, you will see a lot of a big lists with a lot of big names. Many of these names and many of these claims are unsubstantiated. So what I did when I was making this section is I went through all these references and I only brought up the cases uh, that I could find solid referencing for. So I avoided any random websites that didn't back up their claims. Uh, and yeah, I tried my best to filter out. Uh, the stuff now also another thing i want to add to is like there will be cases in this list very very select few that people sometimes dispute about their di diagnosis and if you start nitpicking on that that again is you're missing the point is that there's other cases of a similar nature other similar cases that uh, uh, can still withhold the main argument being made uh, now, with that aside, I want to get into this. We're going to watch Karen Armstrong's uh, video about her epilepsy. When she was a nun, and for many years afterwards, Karen had been plagued by mysterious ailments, by fainting spells, bouts of amnesia, even hallucinations, symptoms that had gone undiagnosed for years. So you were passing out, you were smelling sulfur. And having moments of absolute terror. Terror. Absolute terror when the world uh, is unrecognizable. It's a state that they call jamais vu. It's mm -hmm. the opposite of déjà vu because you've never seen it before. You forget how to go down a flight of stairs. Uh, you forget what a glass of water is or you the world becomes absolutely unrecognizable. So you must have thought you were losing your mind. I, I was. Oh, in, you did think you were losing your I mind. I was. Um, yeah. And I, I was in and out of mental hospitals. And I went to a fleet of psychiatrists who also thought I was neurotic. And finally, I had a grand mal attack in, the, um, in, the, in, a, in, a, in station. a station. Yeah. Karen had suffered a grand mal seizure, losing consciousness while her body convulsed violently. While recovering, she finally received a diagnosis, providing the answer she had been seeking for so many years. Karen had epilepsy. I was taken to hospital. They said, you, you had an epileptic fit. But this is after years. This was after years. I was, I was in my early 30s by this time. We're talking 1976. And as you describe in the spiral circus, as you're sitting there and the doctor says, have there been lapses of memory? Yes. Did you have a smell of this? Did you have a, and you are in awe because all the things mm. you've been experiencing for years and years and years, this doctor is now saying them. Yes. It was, a, it was one of the happiest moments of my life. To be diagnosed as an epileptic. Yes. Yeah. Because I knew now what it was. And he said, you know, this was a classic case. And he said, why did no, nobody spot it? It's, it's, it's textbook. Yes. This is the way my brain is. Dostoevsky had this. 
we think. Mm -hmm. Van Gogh had it. Mm -hmm. You can see it in some of his paintings, I think. Where the, the olive Tennyson had it. Tennyson had it, who mm -hmm. I was studying for all mm -hmm. those years. Mm -hmm. I was probably drawn to his poetry because, because I said, of it. Because of that. Mm -hmm. The very first time you had your first grand mal seizure on when you were on your way to the station, just before you went into the seizure space, you had a, what you thought was a glimpse of God. Can you describe that? Oh, it was just a sort of blinding moment where every, you suddenly saw everything as, as it, the essence of things. Um, and that it, 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 you're filled with sort of joy and wonder and at last this is it and then out. Uh, but I never thought that was God. I always thought there was something, just as I'd never thought that my dreadful fear or, and all the bad stuff I was experiencing was the devil or anything of that sort. I knew there was something the matter with my mind, with my brain, and, and indeed there was. What is shocking to me is that you also kept this from your parents for such a long time. Yes. Uh, it, uh, and I was so sick, you know, when I mm -hmm. left the religious life. I was anorexic and suicidal. And I'm so sorry because my parents uh, thought I was finished. They thought I was over. You know, I got I was ruined in some way. At the convent? Uh, and afterwards. I was six afterwards. years uh, in this state of, of sorrow. You even attempted to take your life, but didn't really remember doing it. There the, wasn't a conscious. Can you read the excerpt? I think it's on page 125. Okay, yes. Yeah. Uh, it, that, that's the sort of thing that happens with this disease. You do things. I mean, you'd go somewhere and you didn't. Um, and you couldn't remember being there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. There you go. What I was uncomfortable consciously trying to do that night was to make clear the depths of my desperation. I did not know how to live any longer, and nobody seemed to realize just how frightened I was. Nobody was willing to listen. I had expressed my fear and despair, and I could do no more. I had come to the end, had given up hope, and there was a certain peace in that. Mm. I, I just, uh, people were saying, oh, you're doing fine. You're great. And I knew I wasn't fine. I was just, uh, I thought I would end my life in a locked ward. Mm. You think you're going crazy. Of course you would. But knowing now that I could trust my mind, yes, that I, I wasn't crazy, that, that, that there was a future, that was when everything changed. All right, all right. So I just want to say um, thank you to... <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> I was just going to say thank you for the super chat from uh, Clodius for $5 and also want to say thank you to uh, Zaka Midikayov for the profits treatment fund. So uh, <laughs> both of you for that super chat and for the support. Uh, but yeah, thank you guys so much for, for the continued support. Uh, but yeah, her case uh, shares some remarkable similarities where the amnesia, the forgetting, the religiosity. But in the end, she knew that, you know, she's not talking to God. She thought something was wrong and she got the epilepsy diagnosis. But that's a very, very, very fascinating case. How similarities were there and how she, despite her epilepsy, got, I don't even know how many PhDs this woman has, like six, seven, <laughs> how many books she's authored. She's uh, she's world famous. Yeah, everybody's heard about her. Uh, but yeah, now let's move on to the next case. We don't want to get stuck on the same one. So next up, 
we have Alyssa D'Amico. So uh, who is she? Alyssa actually wrote a book, Short Circuit, An Epileptic Journey, and she's an uh, poet. She's a published poet, and she experienced epilepsy from childhood to being an adult, and she wrote poems about it. At the age of six, she was diagnosed with epilepsy and started writing poetry soon after. Her work has been published by Albany Poets Inc. up the river, New York University, <clears throat> the National Epilepsy Foundation, and the Epilepsy Foundation of Northeastern New York. She has been a, feature, a featured poet at the Queen's NYC Literature Festival. Uh, if you don't want to read more, you can go into uh, her profile. Uh, but again, it's an amazing, interesting fact that she had her seizures as a child. And then the thing she started doing was writing poetry. And she uses her poetry. She writes about what she went through in her life. Uh, you can buy her book and you can even actually uh, read her poetry as well. Uh, but yeah, very fascinating case uh, as well. This is recent and contemporary. Now, let's go on to the next slide. Now we're going to get into some big names. Uh, in the next slide, we have Socrates had epilepsy. Again, who wrote this? So this is uh, Mr. Osamu and uh, Mr. Walter. And yeah, this is a scientific paper. And Socrates and temporal epilepsy, a pathographic diagnosis 2,400 years later. So they go on in the abstract. The possibility of underlying epilepsy in Socrates. And in the results, they say that he had uh, personally receiving a divine sign. Uh, he had a simple partial seizure of temporal origin. It was a brief voice that usually prohibited Socrates from initiating certain actions. It started when he was a child and it visited Socrates unpredictably. These are consistent with CPS complex partial seizures. And then they go on to make the diagnosis of temporal lobe epilepsy likely. A conclusion, we hypothesize that Socrates had a mild case of TLE without secondary generalizations. Uh, knowledge of modern epileptology could help us understand certain behaviors of historic figures. What is being done here? 2,400 years later, these people present a case of diagnosing somebody as big as Socrates with temporal lobe epilepsy. Now, remember somebody said that, you know, diagnosing or attempting to diagnose historical figures is just a uh, dumb man's endeavor or that they were saying it's immature and it's uh, it's, a, it's not a good thing to do. Well, why are these doctors doing this? This is because we learn a lot about our own culture, our own history, neurology, and how we view such diseases, how they come up. So these things are relevant and this case can be done. Again, it's not a clinical diagnosis in that sense. We don't have Socrates sitting here and they don't have MRI scans or EGs attached to his head, but they're still suggesting that you can still, to a good degree, uh, estimate or approximate that, okay, yeah, this guy probably suffered from epilepsy. Uh, next up, we have another famous name, Caligula, a Roman emperor. Uh, here he says, as a boy, he was troubled with the falling sickness, yet at times, because of sudden faintness, he was hardly able to walk, stand up, to collect his thoughts, or to hold up his head. He himself realized his mental infirmity. Uh, <clears throat> he also goes on, he was especially tormented with sleeplessness, for he never rested more than three hours at night, but he was terrified by strange apparitions once. For example, dreaming that the spirit of the ocean talked to him. Uh, so yeah, the falling sickness is known as a synonym for epilepsy in, in earlier writings. Uh, but yeah, and we have an emperor that is allegedly affected by the, uh, the falling sickness. 
sounds like the early revelations when Muhammad <laughs> couldn't sleep. Mudatil, Muzammil, right? He used to rise up at night and pray. Mm -hmm. And insomnia is a common trait too with this. And especially with the, we talked about this earlier with post-sectal psychosis. In fact, it could be one of the first presenting symptoms before the psychosis sets in. Mm -hmm. And Muhammad's uh, continuously repeated in the, yeah, the first few chapters that he wasn't sleeping. Uh, but with that aside, let's go to the next case. The next is Prince Eric. Uh, this is from the official uh, Swedish Royal Court website. Uh, it says... Uh, was born Prince of Sweden and Norway and the Duke of, I don't know how to pronounce the name, at the Royal Palace of Stockholm in 1889. He was the youngest son. Eric was an epileptic and suffered from a mild learning disability. Uh, he didn't really achieve a lot of big things, but uh, yeah, he died in the Spanish flu. Uh, the point is that he was one uh, famous figure as well. And learning disability is an interesting one where we do see that uh, these people, when they sometimes have some cognitive faculties that are sometimes more so affected than others, uh, for and we'll see some more cases. But this also points to like Muhammad's own learning disability, where he never really learned how to read uh, or write in the traditional sense. So uh, yeah, some pointer here. Uh, now let's go to the next one. Now we're gonna get into the politicians. So this is gonna be interesting, where you have these famous famous politicians in positions of power, positions where they can influence law, constitutions. And there's going to be numerous cases. The point that's being made here is people say, how do these epileptic people achieve or get to such positions of influence? Well, you have uh, cases here. Here is Joe Doyle. He's a British politician. On the left-hand side, he says, uh, it was talking about his, his deaths, uh, but anyways, Joe was a wonderful advocate for people with epilepsy. Uh, he was Ireland's best known person with epilepsy and was always keen to speak publicly about it, which he developed uh, when he was only 16. Uh, during his years, uh, he was also Rainwave's board of directors. Uh, during his years as Lord Mayor, Joe also jointly launched European Declaration on Epilepsy. Uh, yeah, famous guy, achieved quite a bit. He held a diploma in public administration, having attended evening classes at University College Dublin. He was a member of the Dublin Season uh, Pilgrimage for over 50 years, aboard of the Royal Hospital. He was also director of the Brainwave, the Irish Epilepsy Association. Uh, but yeah, he's a politician who was alive when I was alive too, for many of our lives. Uh, recently deceased. But another just point that, yeah, epilepsy-afflicted uh, people can achieve positions of power and rise to positions of influence. Next up, we have another interesting case. This is uh, Neil Abercrombie. Uh, he's the governor of Hawaii. And the reference is actually the Congress's official website. And these are their official notes from their official session in the House of Representatives. These are their transcripts. And you can see there, as he says on the left, many years ago, my life was turned upside down. Something was wrong with me. My doctor could not identify the cause. Finally, I was diagnosed with epilepsy. This is the governor of Hawaii. He's a congressperson. How is he an epileptic yet a governor? Again, we have to understand that our own misperception and negative stigmas surrounding such such a disease is what causes us to come up with these questions of how could Muhammad achieve such greatness? 
we are the ones who are misinformed or have a misperception about these things sometimes. And um, make it, you know, just to kind of emphasize this a bit more, uh, being a governor is not an easy job. You have, you're a public official, you're, you're accountable to the people, you have to be able to communicate well, you have to be able to, you know, mix with people and, you know, dialogue with them, make deals. You know, it's like, it's a very difficult job, right? It's not like, um, it's not an easy thing. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about this comment here? Yeah, so uh, this is an interesting straw man that I'm not saying that if you get epilepsy, you're going to be successful. No, it's not the straw man. Uh, the point that's being made here is that epilepsy cannot always result in uh, degeneration to the point where every epileptic is a non-functional, dysfunctional member of society that can contribute. That's the point. In fact, a lot of the times in history, to be unique, to do something different, you have to be different from other people. Point being made here is you can have epileptic people in certain scenarios achieve greatness, but not all the time. And not that epilepsy is like some magic for uh, becoming an amazingly highly achieving person. In fact, most cases it wouldn't be. It would hinder you, as we're going to yeah, see in the next slide. Hinder. Yeah, obviously it hinders him. That's the... The point is that you can still do it. And th that's the point of these examples, to, just to show that. Mm -hmm. right? Now, the next slide is very important. And why? Because this person that you're going to see is a legend, is a hero. Because this is Tony Coelho. He went from a lawyer to a priest to a congressman, struggled with epilepsy, heart-touching story we're going to watch. He apparently is one of the authors, as you can see on the right side, uh, the uh, American Disability Act. He became the primary author of that. And that act is, is insanely important. Uh, this story is emotional and heart-touching too. Uh, we're just gonna hear it from the guy himself. Let's, uh, let's let it run. And so it is time that our government recognize our abilities and give us the dignity to do what we can do. As a young man, I developed seizures, later diagnosed as epilepsy. For many years, for five years, as I had my seizures on a regular basis, I did not know what they were. I went to every doctor you could think of. I also went to three witch doctors because I was supposedly possessed by the devil. My Republican colleagues think I am, <laughs> but others believed I was. And as I went to college, I was an achiever. I got outstanding grades in high school and outstanding grades in college, student body president in high school and student body president in college. I was outstanding senior in college. I was sought after by different businesses and groups to be involved with their activities and be employed by them. And I had decided that I wanted to be an attorney. In my senior year, I changed my mind. I decided I wanted to become a Catholic priest. As I graduated with honors, I then did, had a physical exam in order to enter the seminary. 
The physical exam pointed out that these seizures that I'd been having for five years meant that I had epilepsy. I always remember very well what happened and that I walked to the doctor's office from my car, sat in the doctor's office, was told about my epilepsy, walked back to my car, got back in my car and drove back to my fraternity house and I was the same exact person. But only in my own mind. Because the world around me changed. My doctor had to notify the legal authorities of my epilepsy. My church was notified and, and immediately I was not able to become a Catholic priest. Because my church did not at the time permit epileptics to be priests. My driver's license was taken away. My insurance was taken away. Every job application has the word epilepsy on it, and I marked it. So I was not going to lie. And I couldn't get a job. My parents refused to accept my epilepsy. I became suicidal and drunk by noon. And the only reason is because I hadn't changed as a person. Only reason is, is that the world around me had changed. And the light had been turned off, the light of opportunity, the light of hope. Not until a priest friend of mine turned me over to a man of hope by the name of Bob Hope, did the light get lit again. And I'm here today, serving in the capacity that I serve, because some people believed. Not because my government protected me, not because my government protected my basic civil rights. So I'm a major advocate of this bill because I want to make sure that other young people, as they're looking for hope, as they believe that the system should work for them, have that hope, have that opportunity. What happened at Gallaudet University was not only an inspiration, I'm sure, to the hearing impaired. What happened at Gallaudet University was an inspiration to all of us with disabilities. And that if we ourselves believe in ourselves and are willing to stand up, we can make a difference. That's what this bill is all about. 36 million Americans deciding it's time for us to stand up for ourselves, make a difference. Say that we want our basic civil rights also. We deserve it. And give us an opportunity to do what we can do. Don't keep telling us what we can't do. I thank my colleagues. Wow. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you, Yusuf Zai, for uh, your generous, generous donation. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, 
I don't know what else to say. Uh, again, thank you so much. Like you said, uh, there's so much evidence people can work through it. With that, a few comments on what we just saw. I mean, this guy's story is phenomenal from uh, seizures to being told that he's possessed by a demon, from a lawyer to hyper religiosity to being a priest to being suicidal to being told he's epileptic, he can't do anything getting no job, and then finally becoming a congressman and then authoring the, the American Disability Act. Like, it's almost tear-jerking. The story this guy has is, is phenomenal. And like I said, like he was saying at the end, stop telling us what we can't do. And that's the thing, right? Like, and this does a lot of uh, destigmatization towards epilepsy, which is very important. Uh, but yeah. That's very, very interesting case. So yeah, there. But yeah, the other interesting thing that I stood out to me was the uh, jinn possession thing. And some still believe he is. Uh, but thank you again yeah. for the comment and the great. Uh, yeah, I want to say thank you as well to Yusuf Zai. Uh, appreciate it. And um, yeah, thank you. And uh, just going through the comments, just uh, quickly to reference. Okay, actually, forget the comments. We'll we'll talk. We'll do comments after. Mm -hmm. uh, but just to kind of emphasize, you know, who this guy is. He's a he's a lawyer. He became a priest. He's a congressman. He deals with many people. You can see he's a great public speaker. Like he speaks incredibly well. He has an inspiring story. He's, um, you know, he's done he's done great things. And if you want to consider Muhammad a great man, I mean, these are other people that had gone through similar experiences not exactly the same but based on the best evidence that we can tell the things that muhammad went through you know, unfortunately he didn't have anyone to diagnose him back then no one to help him but it appeared to be epilepsy and whether or not the people of his time you know recognize as epilepsy you know maybe they did maybe we don't have those recordings maybe you know they expressed it in different ways you know insane or you know a possessed or kahin majnoon these are the type of ways that these things were expressed right mm -hmm. um so any anyhow um anything else about him or should we continue next slide let's next? let's keep moving on because we have so many more interesting cases to cover all right so next up is oh my god john roberts the current chief justice of the usa now his epilepsy is kind of controversial when he had his seizures they're all over the news. It's covered by New York Times, Washington Post, ABC News. I mean, he is the chief justice. I mean, if you do the hierarchy of power, he's the head of the judiciary. He sits all right after the president almost. Uh, but yeah, John Glover Roberts uh, is an American lawyer and jurist serving as the 17th chief justice of the United States. In 2005, Roberts has authored the majority opinion in several landmark cases, including Shelby County, National Federation and a bunch of others. Robert's first reported seizure occurred in 93 when he was playing golf with his friends. And then Robert suffered a second seizure. These are the reported ones we know of in 2007 that he couldn't hide. People have suspected he has had a, a more seizures. But because the nature of his job is so sensitive, he's the head of the U.S. Supreme Court. court he can't afford to let the circus devil disqualify him from being able to do his job. When this happened, it was a big controversy. In the middle, you see Dr. Stephen Pshia, chief of neurology at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City, said, given this was Robert's second seizure, it's likely that he has epilepsy. It's the most likely thing based on what we know from what's been released. Pshia noted that seizures can result from an inherited susceptibility 
lack of sleep or sass. And then she goes on. And then there's another doctor, Dr. Laura, an assistant professor of neurology and co-director of the Epilepsy Center, agreed that Roberts probably has epilepsy. So a very, very hugely interesting case that came up. Uh, but it's something that I found as well going through. Uh, this was very recent as well. He's still the chief justice, by the way. He's He still is the uh, sitting chief justice of the U.S. Uh, with that aside, I mean, if you want to look more into it, you can uh, open those articles. There are other doctors that will go. They'll say, okay, maybe he has he technically is epileptic, and then they go into the percentage chance of recurrence of 60%, 50%. And then they go into the definitions of epilepsy. But yeah, like I said, just to show you guys that there are neurologists who have said that he had, most likely does have epilepsy. Uh, with that aside, let's go to another case, another, another member of parliament. Like where, why are there so many members of parliament, people in position of power with epilepsy? The whole idea that Muhammad couldn't get there because of epilepsy starts to fall apart. Here we have Laura Sandys. She's a British member of parliament and she talks about her own epilepsy. On the right side, we have some references for what uh, she has done, her activism and some other references. But I figured we'll hear from the person from their mouth themselves. epilepsy in your role as an MP and when were you first diagnosed with epilepsy? I was about 23 and I had a some massive seizure at work and mm -hmm. I have to say it uh, it gave my colleagues rather a shock but um, so I got diagnosed at 23 and I've had maybe about five or six right. episodes since then. And has it affected your career becoming an MP? No it hasn't. Um, I think that there's an element though of of stigma and if I'd advertised the fact that I was epileptic, um, I'm sure people's misperception and you know misunderstanding of the um, condition mm. might have come in the way. But when you were selected as the candidate in your constituency, how did, how did that work out? Well, there was no problem initially and then I spoke to uh, the chairman of my organisation and I said, I think you should know that, you know, I'm epileptic and it's unlikely, but I could possibly have a seizure. And she said, well, so am I. <laughs> the amount of people yeah. in the country who have this condition is much larger than people know. And in many ways, the more people can talk about it, the more everybody starts to say, yes, my uncle, my daughter, my aunt, mm. etc., have epilepsy. And normalizing yeah. it, yeah. and in some ways also normalizing people's responses to it. Yeah. There are some changes afoot in the health services, and I think a number of people with epilepsy are concerned about what's going to happen with GP commissioning. How do you see all that working out? I think it's absolutely crucial that we put in place the right understanding of epilepsy at a GP commissioning level but I think we also need to look at some of the specialists commissioning that needs to support those with extreme epilepsy also um, sort of pediatric epilepsy as well and I think we need to assess how these reforms will actually impact the treatment of people with epilepsy. I'm concerned but I'm sure that we can address it. Are GPs, do you think they have the knowledge of epilepsy to be able to deal with it? 
well, I mean, I'm very lucky in my area, we've got a GP who specializes in epilepsy, but that is extremely rare yeah. around the country. Yeah. And we've got to start expecting GPs to understand a lot more of these sorts of conditions, mm. epilepsy, MS, Parkinson's. If they don't have the understanding, they don't have the knowledge, then we're going to have to start to get gaps in service delivery. You've recently been appointed as the chairman of the All Party Group on epilepsy. What's the level of interest within the Commons around epilepsy? I think it's increasing. Um, both myself and Paul Maynard have declared ourselves as having epilepsy. Mm -hmm. I think that that's created a new climate. Uh, we do know that statistically there's likely to be another five within Parliament who still haven't declared themselves. Um, but we have Valerie Vaz is introducing a 10-minute uh, rule bill. We're really pushing the agenda with all the different ministers. All right. So, yeah, I think we got the point. So mm. she's an MP. She's, in, she's a member of Parliament in the UK. She has epilepsy. She's had five or so seizures. And she said there's many more people than you think that actually have this issue so i think most people the point that she's trying mm. to make is you don't realize like how many people do actually have epilepsy that are among you it's just not always obvious right exactly exactly so uh with her case being a very interesting one uh, we have the next slide paul maynard he's another member of british parliament we're just going to show a minute of his clip and he's speaking in the parliament about ep his own epilepsy which is very powerful let's listen to it Paul Maynard. Thank you, Chairmanship, and I congratulate the member for Birmingham on securing this very important debate. I myself am epileptic. I have nocturnal epilepsy. I have tonic clonic seizures, which, as the gentleman explained, are the most severe form of epilepsy that we all associate with the condition. I am, for another fortnight, between the ages of 20 and 35. I am single, and for the avoidance of doubt, I therefore sleep alone. I'm also male, for the avoidance of any further doubt. And it may surprise people outside this chamber, but I work long hours in what is quite a stressful occupation. At least I think it is. So I therefore tick every possible risk box going for being, for being at risk of sudden unexplained death due to epilepsy. I go to bed knowing every night that there is a tiny, infinitesimally small chance that I could not wake up again. And that is, of course, a great... All right, so here we have another member of parliament, uh, Paul Maynard, who is epileptic. And if you want to read more, you can look at the site. And uh, Laura Sandys was the MPV we were watching just before him. Again, to affirm that, okay, people with epilepsy do not become uh, unworthy members or incapable of contributing to society in meaningful ways. In fact, this is just a stigma people have, which needs some undoing. With that aside, we're going to keep moving on. Uh, and you emphasize that you know this is a stressful situation too for him. Yeah, yeah, he's doing so a hard, hard doing. job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if any job would give him seizures, it'd be this one. Uh, so the yeah. next few cases are going to be very interesting. Elliot Roosevelt. So the Roosevelts actually ended up being there's three or four of them being the presidents of the USA and high positions of power. Uh, so Elliot Roosevelt uh, was the third child of Martha Theodore Roosevelt Sr. He was the younger brother of future president Theodore Roosevelt. 
the father of Eleanor Roosevelt and the godfather of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So he's related to two U.S. presidents. This is a government website, as you can see, nps.gov, and it says, as a child, Elliot suffered seizures. Elliot's seizures continue. He suffered from severe headaches and dizzy spells. If you want to read more, you can keep on going. He was uh, he's pretty good and successful academically and whatnot. Uh, well, let's go to the next slide. We have Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He's the president of the USA. Now, here we have Stephen uh, Lamazo. He's a medical doctor who wrote this paper about uh, FDR's uh Epilepsy. So he says, in the four years since beginning research for a book on the health of our 32nd president, the diagnosis of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's seizures evolved from a suspicion to a virtual certainty. Even more importantly, it is clear that they had a major impact upon his mental acuity and decision-making during one of the most critical periods in American history. Uh, and then he goes on as to like some doctors or some people around him because if epilepsy was still not fully understood in its different forms, they misinterpreted the seizures as TIAs or transient uh, attacks uh, of something, <clears throat> ischemic attacks, so like many strokes. Uh, then he says, considering the frequency, duration, stereotypic nature, and rapidity of change of this behavior, Alternative diagnosis other than complex partial seizures are hard to surmise. So he says that complex partial seizures are the most likely and only sensible diagnosis. Other ones are hard to justify. Then he says it is not surprising that Roosevelt's seizures went unrecognized by those outside his most inner circle of physicians and confidants, which makes sense because epilepsy is not very well understood amongst the public and people see it as embarrassing and they do try to hide it. Uh, mm. Now, going on to the next slide, we Can have... Can I read something from, uh, before we yeah. go? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, just want to say thank you to the Dude Abides for your 10 uh, British Pounds uh, donation. Guys, thanks along. He says, guys, thanks for the stream along with Yusuf Zai. Hope this helps towards the documentary. So I will be sending this money to Abdullah Gondal and he <laughs> will motivate, hopefully this will motivate him to put together the documentary. I just want to read a couple of quotes from this because this is very interesting. When I entered the president's office, he was sitting there with a vague, glassy-eyed expression on his face and his mouth hanging open. He would start talking about something, then in mid-sentence, he would stop and his mouth would drop open and he'd sit staring at me in silence. Repeatedly, he would lose his train of thought, stop and stare blankly at me. It was an agonizing experience for me. So this is interesting. Like, I wonder how many of Muhammad's companions... Like, because they had this prophetic mindset that, that they were predisposed to, they were already told this is prophethood. They were interpreting these, like, strange behaviors. In this case, you know, eventually they figured out as well that what it was. But imagine 1,400 years ago, a man doing things like this. It wouldn't be obvious. But it these things sound so familiar to what, what we've been hearing in the series, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In fact, I'm just thinking about what you said. There are a couple of narrations that when I was doing research, I came across them where Muhammad is there and then somebody starts talking to him. And then Muhammad just start, stops talking or stops responding and has a blank stare on his face. And then the people tell the other guy, how dare you keep talking to the prophet? Don't you see he's getting revelation? And that's very similar to like what you read from here, where he'd be sitting there and he'd have a blank uh, stare on his face, lose his train of thought. And we did cover some references about the uh, absence, uh, 
seizures of Muhammad, or at least like he'd gaze out and kind of like be lost for a little bit. It's also interesting that it says that people other than his close circle didn't know mm-hmm. that he was having seizures, which is interesting again. Like it's it's not always obvious, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. With like the different forms of epilepsy and given that people know so little about epilepsy and the neurological disorders have a history of being associated with supernatural things like genies and stuff, it creates a very bad spot to be in because if you talk to some people they'll start labeling you crazy gin possessed it's rather better to just hide it and treat it in secret Uh, but yeah next up we have another roosevelt a theater roosevelt jr he's suspected to have epilepsy as well uh because we also seen that two people in his family family is a problem people with the genetics can have two to four times uh, more likelihood uh, if you want to see some references, we have put them on the side there. Again, uh, now let's go to the next one. We have Lil Wayne, famous rapper. This one is a very famous kid. You can find videos. In fact, there's an interview of him as well where he says that uh, there's videos of him having seizures, actually. So his cousin filmed Lil Wayne having seizures. He was in the hospital. It was on the news. What does Lil Wayne say? I'm an epileptic, so I'm prone to seizures. Uh, this is in my first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh seizure. I have had a bunch of seizures. Y'all just never hear about it. Lilvin first began publicly speaking about his experience in history with epilepsy in 2013. Despite that, he had his first seizures as a child. Uh, the reason was explained during an interview. At the time, Wayne's mother thought the seizure was nothing more than a simple fainting spell. To Wayne's knowledge, he didn't have another seizure until he became an adult, although Wayne has stated that he is unaware of when he's having a seizure. It was only after Wayne, as an adult, seeking medical attention for seizures that Wayne came to recognize his history. And then he realized that, oh boy, he's had quite a few and he's had epilepsy since a child. And you can see CBS News, Reuters, BBC even wrote about his epilepsy and seizures. It's interesting that another kind of, I think, useful point here is that time after time, these people usually don't realize right away, especially that they're having seizures. They don't even know anything happens sometimes. So imagine Muhammad. There would be no way for him to even realize what was happening to him, right? It would have been like, you know, like, as some of the hadith you've brought forward, he'd look away, he'd look back, someone, and then he'd keep talking as if nothing happened, and the companions would be like, what just happened there? <laughs> but yeah. to just experiencing it, it's not always obvious. Exactly. And I mean, <clears throat> given like back in that era, like those people would have had even a harder time recognizing those weird behaviors from Muhammad and linking them to epilepsy, given that even the contemporary cases we see now have that same problem. Uh, but yeah, he also had issues from childhood. Muhammad fainted, fell on the ground, had angels cut his chest open. Uh, so Muhammad did have these issues as well since a child. Uh, let's just go to the next slide. We have another very, very... One more, one more last thing about Little Wayne mm-hmm. is... Um, that you mentioned that when, you know, he was wondering, why am I suddenly getting episodes of epilepsy? Where his mom said, well, you might have been having this since you were a kid. Mm -hmm. But you just, again, you didn't recognize what it was, right? And one more last thing about Little Wayne. People 
that are not normal, so to speak, tend to be the ones that have massive change that do these things, especially when you look at people in the, you know, community, the artistic community, you know, musicians, poets, I would consider Muhammad a sort of poet, you know, slash politician. Mm -hmm. These type of people tend to have a big, not always, but they, they tend to have a bigger than normal effect on society because of they don't fit in. They don't behave the way you expect normal people. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Normal is not necessarily a good thing. It's just normal. It's just it's just a bell curve, right? Mm -hmm. And the people on the outside of the bell curve, these are the ones that, you know, they can have outlandish change because they are doing things that that break the norms, you know, like going against the, the grain, so to speak. So that, that's the last thing I just want to add mm -hmm. on that. But no, no, totally fascinating. In fact, at times you need to be different to achieve such incredible things that require a delusional amount of determination, as I like to put it in that way. Uh, but let's uh, move on to the next slide. We have Prince, famous musician, actor, songwriter. He's legendary very very famous i mean some people have placed him next to like michael jackson's level of fame in that era so let's see uh prince there's a reason prince has a reputation for eccentricity the singer piped up this week with a slew of new confessions such as his opinions on angels as a cure for epilepsy and his support for conspiracy theories and apocryphal former presidents the inspiration for these revelations was innocuous enough a discussion about Dreamer, a song on his new Lotus Flower album. I've never spoken about this before, but I was born epileptic and I used to have seizures when I was young. He told the U.S. talk show host Tavis Smiley, and my mother and father didn't know what to do or how to handle it, but they did the best they could with what little they had. One day I walked into her and said, Mom, I'm not going to be sick anymore. And she said, why? And I said, because an angel told me so. Fascinating, eh? Uh, his case is interesting. He might have... You didn't, um, you, you, didn't, you didn't mention who else said <laughs> similar. I mean, it's, it's interesting. So Muhammad said that too. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Can you tell the story? I... I Wait, give me Wasn't it? Was it Khadija? Was it Muhammad? Oh yeah, Muhammad said the angels praying for me to get better. It's oh very yeah, similar, yeah. Right? yeah. Or is it like yeah, he was sick, or the angel came Gabriel to pray came for Muhammad? To yeah. To right? yeah. <laughs> so the angel, yeah. Oh, that's funny. Uh, but yeah, this is a very interesting uh, case as well. Now we're gonna switch to uh, the next few literary cases. Edward Lear. Uh, we have a few references from Oxford University, academic.com, and Edward Lear Society. Here, uh, Lear suffered from health problems. From the age of six, he suffered frequent grand mal epileptic seizures, bronchitis, asthma, and in later life, partial blindness. Lear experienced his first seizure at a fair near, fair, uh, near Highgate with his father. The event scared and embarrassing. Lear felt lifelong guilt and shame for his epileptic conditions. His adult diaries indicate that he always sensed the onset of a seizure in time to remove himself from public view. Now listen to this is interesting. How Lear was able to anticipate them is not known, but many people with epilepsy report a ringing in the ears or an aura before the onset of a seizure. Muhammad was reported to hear the ringing bell sound. 
In Lear's time, epilepsy was believed to be associated with demonic possession. Same with Muhammad's time. He suffered from periods of severe depression, which he referred to as the morbids. Muhammad had issues like that too. The Amul has in the year of depression after the revelation he got. He was sad and depressed. He was running around. There was a pause in revelation and he would attempt to kill himself. Uh, interesting, uh, interesting parallels. Now, Edward Lear was actually quite a famous artist, illustrator, author, and poet as well. So very interesting. Now we get to the next slide and we have Alfred Lord Tennyson. Remember Karen, Am uh, Karen Armstrong talk about Lord Tennyson in her video, and she said that I was drawn to his poetry for that reason. Uh, we talk about here uh, a reference from Yves Laplante's book. The left side, we see the Victorian point in drama says Alfred Lord Tennyson also transformed suspected TLE seizures, temporal lobe epilepsy seizures, into art, but only after having been reassured that a seizure disorder was not what he had. As a young man, Tennyson learned that he had epilepsy from his doctor who based the diagnosis on Tennyson's report of three childhood convulsions and the walking trances that he had experienced regularly for several years and on his family history. The bottom half, uh, this is Tennyson himself had three seizures after which he appeared dead. Repeated seizures in childhood can lead to adult epilepsy, especially TLE. In one study, one third of the cases of TLE could be traced to severe convulsions before the age of five. On the right side, they talk about his short-sightedness, and in fact, he would keep composing poems in his head for years. So he could keep this, uh, this, these poem compositions going. He was a genius poet. He was the poet laureate of Great Britain and Ireland during the much of Queen Victoria's reign. He remains one of the most famous British poets and shares some interesting similarities with Muhammad. Now we go to the next slide. Uh, so. We have, did Julius Caesar suffer from epileptic seizures? On the left, we have the Dr. John Hughes. Uh, Caesar likely had epilepsy on the basis of four attacks that were probably complex partial seizures. And he also has absence attacks of the seizure. On the right side, we have two, three, four other doctors talk about this idea as well. See uh, that Caesar suffered from headaches, seizures, and personality changes. We highlight the life of seizures, the potential origin of the sickness, and they try to find the exact cause of the seizures. You can try to argue, some people have written that maybe he didn't have epilepsy, but the point that I'm trying to demonstrate is that there are, in fact, doctors who have written that he did have epilepsy. And remember Dr. Woods that we were featuring from the beginning in our series, he also put Julius Caesar as one of the cases with epilepsy. Uh, but yeah, interesting to see here. Now we're going to move on to another case. We have epilepsy of Pope Pius uh, IX. Pius IX, one of the most consequential popes in Catholic history, was reported to have epilepsy. Uh, 21 sources were consulted, and we conclude that Pius IX had partial epilepsy, like a temporal lobe focus with secondarily generalized seizures. An air drowning event in his youth, coupled with a pre-existing central nervous system lesion, as evidenced by photos showing facial asymmetry, likely contributed to his epilepsy. Epilepsy played an important role in PS9's life because it led him to the papacy. So he became a pope, apparently due to his epilepsy, and epilepsy played a major role in it. PS's life holds lessons for modern-day epilepsy advocacy. So again, we have another person with epilepsy in history rise to the position of pope. 
And these authors, these doctors are saying that epilepsy probably played a role in there. Uh, next up, we have a famous, famous painter, George Innes. Uh, he's a prominent, prominent American landscape painter, one of the most influential American artists of the 19th century. Innes was a small child and suffered from epilepsy, which he cited as a reason for his lack of formal education. So he spent most of his time painting. He's a very, very good painter. I was actually shocked at seeing some of his works. Uh, as you see, we have some museum websites there, some uh, uh, educational.edu websites, and Washington Post as well. So another artistic person who is said to be epileptic. Now we have Edgar Allan Poe, an amazing storyteller and poet who suffered from epilepsy, complex partial seizures, post-tictal states, and psychosis. His poetry has thematic resemblance to Muhammad's Quran. Some of the poems definitely do. Uh, so let's see what it says. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe is one of the most celebrated American storytellers, lived through and wrote descriptions of episodic unconsciousness, confusion, and paranoia. These symptoms have been attributed to alcohol or drug abuse, but also could represent complex partial seizures, prolonged post-ictal states, or post-ictal psychosis. Complex partial seizures were not well described in Poe's time, which could explain a misdiagnosis. Alternatively, he may have suffered from complex partial epilepsy that was complicated or caused by substance abuse. Even today, persons who have epilepsy are mistaken for substance abusers and occasionally are arrested during post-sectal confusion states. Uh, but yeah, they also suspect that he might have had epilepsy. Next up, we have another genius, a giant in literature, Gustave Faubarque, nervous disease and autobiography and epileptological approach. Gustave Flaubert was one of the most famous French novelists uh, more than 20 years ago. Complex partial epilepsy of occipital temporal lobe origin was suggested as having been the nervous disease of Gustave Flaubert, uh, one of the most famous French novelists. They go on uh, and they say, if the semiology of the reported attacks is considered, epilepsy ranks among the most probable diagnoses. In our opinion, psychopathological considerations suggest primary involvement of mesial temporal lobe structures with typical findings of ictal and interictal mood behavior. So we're seeing so many cases of literary geniuses and giants with epilepsy, especially temporal epilepsy. You know, what is the link? If you go back to the first, first slide, we talked about brain anatomy and what the structure of the brain is. On the left side of the brain, Normally, the lateralization or your language is mostly focused on the left hemisphere. Around, in and around the temporal lobes, we are called the Wernicke's and Broca's area. These are two spots in the brain uh, that are responsible for speech comprehension and uh, speech production, right? Uh, anyways, without getting too much into detail, if you have seizures or electrical activity that is not regulated in those regions, it could leak or seep into those areas of the brain that control the language and that could cause you certain uh, uh, writing or creative outputs. Now, interestingly, language is also tied to theory of mind, i.e. your perception of being able to produce mental states onto other beings, which is tied with perceiving God or angels. If you have that, you're getting hypergraphia. If one link is that epilepsy also ties in to perception of uh, or being predisposed to believing in God. Another interesting thing is cap grass. Remember the imposter syndrome? 
fusiform gyrus is also right there on the temporal lobe. So that also kind of adds together. So when you're having a seizure, if you have uh, electric activity spreading in that part of the brain, you might see some, you might hear a voice for the spreading of the language center. You might see a figure because the theory of mind and it's all sorts of things, uh, but just to mention that. Uh, but so yeah, just to um, read it, we're almost to all the slides, so just bear with us for a couple more, mm -hmm. and uh, we'll get to a lot of this is very technical. Uh, but these are just we're just adding more examples of how, you know, <clears throat> not po poets, politicians, artists of all sorts. You know, this is to make the case to show like just how many different types of people were actually diagnosed with epilepsy. Mm -hmm. And now we have Mash. I don't know how to pronounce his name properly, but Machado de Assis. Uh, we have two papers from uh, two different people. Machado de Assis is considered the most important Brazilian writer and a great universal literary figure. It is clear that Machado presented localized symptomatic epilepsy with complex partial seizures, secondarily generalized of unknown etiology. The seizures which began in infancy or childhood had remission in adolescence and then recurred in his 30s and became more frequent in his later years. His depression got markedly worse with age. Despite this, Machado showed all his genius, which is still actual and universal. On the right side, we see again, Machado de Assis suffered from temporal epilepsy, probably with origin in the non-dominant hemisphere. The evidence for this is provided by the detailed reports of the characteristics of his seizures by his contemporaries. Then he says Machado de Assis became one of the most important Brazilian writers of all times. Fascinating, eh? Another hugely important figure in Brazilian literature has been said to have suffered from epilepsy. Now, another interesting thing to note here is he had seizures as a child, then they kind of remissioned or they stopped in adolescence. But when his 30s and later on in life, they came back. This is exactly like Muhammad. As a child, he had those chest-cutting incidents, fainting incidents. People thought he was crazy. His foster mom returned him to his mother. Then it kind of slowed down, stopped in adolescence. But then he got to his late 30s, early 40s. It started picking up again. And then he had his huge grand mal attack where he went to the cave and saw the angel. Now, uh, let's get to the next slide. Another genius, uh, temporal epilepsy and a genius of natural history. MRI vol volumetric study of a postmortem brain. So, Komagusu Minakara was a 20th century Japanese genius devoted to natural history and folklore, he suffered from temporal epilepsy. So what these guys did with him uh, is he was famous for his immense range of works, including his discovery of many new varieties of mycetos uh, or slime moles. And his diary revealed he was afflicted with, affected with by epilepsy. In the study of his brain, we adopted a method of measuring the volume of hippocampi by MRI of postmortem brain and found evidence of right hippocampal atrophy. So his right hippocampus is shrinking, it's atrophying. Uh, this finding, together with the striking parallels between his behavior and the known behavioral syndrome and temporal lobe epilepsy, suggests that he was affected by temporal epilepsy. Then they say... Uh, offers a bridge between neuroscience and classical uh, psychopathologic approaches to the creativity of geniuses. Interesting, they took his brain, measured it, MRI volumetric stuff, and they concluded he had epilepsy and he's a known genius. 
Too bad um, we don't have Muhammad's brain. It'd be interesting. <laughs> yeah. Now, another one. This is a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, I have movies been made about him. He's technically a schizophrenic, but the reason we're mentioning this is this psychotic state that ensues uh, can be very similar, if not almost identical, between epileptic and schizophrenic people. We discussed this in part one and part two in great detail. Uh, but yeah, this guy is the founder of game theory. He won the Nobel Prize. There's a movie about him, The Beautiful Mind, uh, in 2001. Amazing. He actually went, spent time in mental wards. He thought that he was the chosen Messiah of God for a while. But yeah, he won the Nobel Prize. Uh, next up, we have Emperor Napoleon. So gotta sit up because Farid's making a comeback. <laughs> so when we talked about this in the initial presentation last last year, we showed this exact slide. You can go to the initial presentation and look at this. The slide was exactly the same. The screenshot in the bottom, if you notice in the abstract, clearly says the epileptic seizures were the result of chronic uremia from a severe urethral stricture caused by gonorrhea that was transmitted from his wife. This was there the whole time. Keep this in mind. Uh, so why did we show Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte? because he was just one of the cases of numerous emperors like we've shown today uh, that showed that he had epileptic attacks. Now, were we concerned about the, the origin of his epilepsy? No. Uh, provoke versus unprovoked seizures? No, because that's a complete uh, misdirection, red herring, uh, as, and that's what Farid did. So uh, what we're going to do, we're going to go to the next slide. You're gonna play. Oh, so, so you're saying that this guy conquered, you know, <laughs> massive parts of the world, and he had epileptic attacks. How yeah. is that possible? Yeah. So, ex so he had epilepsy, exactly. <laughs> epileptic attacks. Now, Farid's yeah. cousin can objected that it was provoked epilepsy, and then he said that I was hiding it, but I never hid it. It was there in the slide. It says right there, and the, they go off on a tangent, which seems to suggest that they're straw manning because i'm merely just showing here uh that epilepsy doesn't make you dysfunctional and great people have had it now mm -hmm. the fact that they cherry picked this one out and then they disregarded all the other emperors in the other military cases shows and seems to suggest the uh, the malicious nature now we're going to go to the next slide we're going to watch it and then we're going to open the paper after talk um <laughs> Um, so, Farid, uh, Gondel uh, goes on uh, to uh, say that certain people uh, of influence uh, or certain historical figures uh, and military leaders were uh, epileptic. Again, Gondel uh, did not uh, take proper history, do a physical exam, and do the needed investigation. Um, one example of... of how Gondal uh, lacks uh, the understanding of what uh, epilepsy is or chooses to neglect uh, or chooses to ignore what is being written carefully is when he goes uh, and comments about uh, Napoleon. That spans like the whole continent, right? Well, here you have an example. Napoleon Bonaparte was also suffering from epilepsy and psychogenic attacks, but he was able to rule an empire among the most intelligent men, like you can see, we've known, especially in terms of military geniuses. 
This nullifies the objection that epileptics are dysfunctional and cannot lead armies or nations or that intelligence is always negatively affected by such conditions. Okay? He goes, Gondor goes and uh, uses uh, Napoleon as an example. I went on and read the article that, that was written, and apparently Napoleon had uremia. That means buildup of urea in his blood. Uh, and uh, the uremia caused the Napoleon C. So what does that mean? It means that Napoleon had provoked seizures rather than unprovoked seizures. And if you remember, epilepsy is defined as two unprovoked seizures that are 24 hours apart, or one unprovoked seizure with high uh, risk of, of recurrence. So what Napoleon had was not epilepsy. Okay. Napoleon does, does, he, had, does he know that? Uh, of course, uh, he might. I don't know if he, if he knows that. If he knows that and chose to ignore what he know what he knew and and just uh, try to mislead the audience, this is a problem. And if he doesn't know and speaks about it and lectures about it, that's another problem. So Gondel is 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 either ignorant or a liar. All right. So a few things they said in there. First off, they go off on this weird tangent that I was somehow hiding the fact that he was having provoked seizures. Now, the funny thing is even the screenshot they show in their own clip has the screenshot where it says right there that he, he had provoked seizures in the abstract. The point is, as you know, provoked versus unprovoked seizures is completely irrelevant because we're not trying to investigate did Muhammad have, let's say, a tumor did he have like encephalitis did he have a lesion did he have an infection we just can't know that that's not the point of the argument and napoleon is one example of provoked seizures you have so many other examples that i've seen that are diagnosed epileptics that have achieved greatness similar to napoleon's the fact the point still stands they go off on this weird tangent uh that uh, his provoked seizures and uremia causing it somehow absolves his epilepsy and that his epilepsy somehow magically disappears. He still had epileptic attacks. And then he then downplays uh, the whole idea that Napoleon's epilepsy was like some chill-ass thing, like it wasn't something too super serious, and then accuses me of not reading the paper. Now, what I'm going to do is just to show you how ridiculous he sounds here, we're going to open the paper and we're going to read the paper and we're going to sh show you some highlights. And then you'll realize like these guys are just going off on their own little straw man tangent. So this is the paper, the same paper we had. So on the left side, I'm also going to remind you that these are doctors and the doctor's words here. These are and I'm just reading them. So I'm going to go follow their vocabulary as well. Napoleon lapsed into an epileptic trance of which he remembered nothing. His long history of epileptic seizures generally followed a pattern, usually occurring in the evening or late at night after weeks of hard and intense work. Evidence for epileptic seizures, section three. McLean mentioned the conclusive seizure that Napoleon had when he was in bed with one of his lady friends. She made a seizure disorder widely known because of her own panic witnessing the convulsions. Likely the clearest example of a generalized tonic-clonic seizure took place on October 1st, 1805, when the emperor was dining with the emperor Josephine. While holding Josephine in his arms and bidding her good night, Napoleon collapsed in a severe epileptic convulsion. 
uh, he fell to the floor in a convulsive state, was ap apneic and foamed at the mouth and later vomited. Josephine had witnessed earlier attacks and was seriously alarmed. Although he had heard rumors of Napoleon's epilepsy, this was the first time he had witnessed such a severe attack. The emperor's breathing gradually returned to normal and the whole attack lasted 15 minutes, longer than any of the previous seizures. On recovery, Napoleon got to his feet, commanding all present to total secrecy. So he's telling everybody, don't tell anybody about my seizure. Uh, he then set out alone in gathering together his grand army. This description would be consistent with a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. Napoleon was never treated for his seizures. Slow down a uh, chronic uremic state. While trying to urinate, Napoleon once said, this is my weak spot. It is by this that I shall die. On the right side in the second uh, screenshot, we see epileptic seizures occur in about one-third of individuals with chronic renal failure and are usually generalized tonic-clonic attacks. And this is in the extreme right. It says, in summary, the evidence seems clear that Emperor Napoleon had psychogenic attacks based on tremendous amounts of stress in his life and also had, as in red, epileptic attacks. <laughs> and then they go in in a chronic uremic state and finally epileptic seizures. So now think about this. Am I misreading the paper or misrepresenting or these guys are nitpicking a completely irrelevant part of the argument and then going off on this weird ass straw man accusing me of using wrong terminology but then not reading the paper themselves that is pretty clear as to what it says and they think that because they mention his uremia somehow absolves his his epileptic state or his epileptic seizures the point is his seizures were still affecting him but he still was able to keep on going and one thing he mentioned, Farid's cousin, was after a seizure, he never went into battle or bay, like got his army together. But we see another thing here is after one of the big seizures, Napoleon gets to his feet and sets out to set up his own army and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, you don't want to stress out too much as these should be clear to you guys that even if you take Napoleon out of the equation, we still have so many other cases. The point still stands on its own. So uh, um, what's the point? Like, wh I don't understand. What's, why is there an emphasis on this uh, uremia and, you know, how he has troubles peeing? What, how is that relevant? Why did they bring that up? Exactly. Why did they bring it up? They're trying to say they're going to get into the semantics of what epilepsy is. Mm -hmm. Epilepsy is defined as, you know, two unprovoked seizures. So a lot of the times, as long as you don't know the cause of the seizure, You'll be classifying it as epilepsy but as soon as you recognize the cause of the seizure at times it then becomes a provoked seizure so for example like uh, do you have too much stress in your life the stress is provoking your seizure do you have a hormonal imbalance did you hit your head somewhere recently loads of other scenarios right or tumor fact as it can identify the cause of the uh, the seizure like I said, when you even to you, this sounds completely irrelevant to the argument being made because we're not talking about what was causing Muhammad's epilepsy to begin with because that's too much of an idea that we cannot get into because we don't have MRIs, EGs, and stuff. We can speculate a little bit, but we're going to focus on the symptoms of his epilepsy. Right, and and as we, as we can see here, like it's quite clear that this is a, a fair way of... Not diagnosing because, I mean, when you diagnose someone, obviously there's someone that's living, you know, you have a doctor. The reason why doctors diagnose people is because the doctors and 
they're trying to help that person. If someone's died, you know, obviously we don't need to diagnose him officially, but if we can come up with an explanation that makes sense, just like they're doing right here, you know, paper after paper after paper you've linked and Dems has, has always said that this is the best explanation for what they're describing. This describes this description, right? And, and just to bring, bring back a point from the previous episode, in the past, you know, we didn't have videos. So nowadays, a lot of the time, doctors are using patient videos. Parents or relatives are taking a video of the patient as he's having a seizure. They're describing. Back then, they didn't have that. So we're going, we're going based on descriptions, which are basically like a video, so to speak. Mm. The, the expression of what, was, what people saw Muhammad doing. So in the same way, um, and, and so just to clarify one more last thing about the epilepsy. If, is there a difference? I think you, you just explained it, but is there a difference between being epileptic and having seizures? You said being epileptic means you have to have two seizures? So like you can have a seizure due to a lot of different things that can be, for example, if you're having stress in your life or a bunch of numerous uh, factors that once those factors go Either. away, yeah, yeah, exactly. Febrile convulsions, right? And as soon as those factors go away, your epilepsy goes away, right? Uh, there's also psychogenic attack, imitators of epilepsy, things that look like epilepsy, but aren't in fact epilepsy. It's a completely different discussion uh, that we can get into, but uh, a whole different tangent. But yeah, this was it was completely irrelevant to the main point being made anyways, because <laughs> the doctors were saying in the paper, they were using the terminology epileptic attacks. Yep. So me saying epileptic attacks, I shouldn't be held at fault. Yeah. Plus, I was showing the abstract where it said uremia was causing it. So I knew about it. They just made a straw man and went off. Now, uh, we have another person, Emperor Michael IV, uh, Papleron, or I don't know how to pronounce that, to pardon that, uh, for his epilepsy. So let's see. Nearly all expressing popular opinion considered his disease to be demonic possession that constituted a form of divine punishment for the emperor's adultery, an act of murder. In the conclusion... From the study of the Byzantine histories and chronicles, it can be deduced that Emperor Michael IV of Papillon suffered from generalized clonic, uh, tonic-clonic epileptic seizures. And if you want to read more, you can read the whole paper, but this is another emperor that's suspected to have epilepsy. Now we go to Joan of Arc. Uh, she's also suspected to have epilepsy. Joan of Arc was an uneducated farmer's daughter from a remote village in France and changed history as she led armies inspired by the voice of God. The author compares her to Muhammad twice as her story has strong similarities with the Islamic prophet. Muhammad reported that most often his revelations were preceded by ringing bell sounds. Uh, Joan of Arc's exceptional achievements, how could an uneducated farmer's daughter raised in harsh conditions in isolation in a remote village in medieval France have found the strength and resolution to alter the course of history? Ecstatic epileptic auras and that she joins the host of creative religious thinkers suspected or known to have epilepsy from St. Paul and Muhammad to Dostoevsky who have changed Western civilization. On the right side, we see bells have also been associated with the seizure of other known or reputed epileptic persons. Muhammad, for example, was widely suspecting of having epilepsy. The supernatural message he was said to receive as he wrote the Quran came to him like the sound of a bell. You can argue, I mean, you'll always find people saying, oh, Joan of Arc maybe wasn't epileptic. You can see back and forth. But from this paper, we can see that she did, in fact, exhibit some signs of epilepsy. And the author 
whoever wrote this from the Department of Neurology in University of California, Doc, uh, Elizabeth Footsmith and Lydia Bain. They think that he's similar to Muhammad's case. Not my words, their words. Now, the next one is very, very interesting. Hold on one second, one second, one second. Yeah. I just want to emphasize this because mm -hmm. I think this is so interesting and amazing. This is like, I got to say, guys, the prophet, female, okay, there's no such thing as female prophets, but the fe just imagine the story. How is it that an uneducated farmer's daughter raised, raised in harsh isolation in a remote village in medieval France could have found the strength and resolution to alter the course of history? There is only one possible explanation. She was a messengeress of God, Allah. You know, <laughs> do exactly. you not see that this is the exact argument that Muslims are making? How is it that it's an argument from... Is that called an argument from ignorance? I don't know if that's the right fallacy, but... They don't understand the disease or its effects since, yeah, ignorance. You don't understand how it's possible, so therefore it must be God. You are filling in the... It, it's well, First of all, it's a false dichotomy. It, mm -hmm. There's obviously other possible reasons. Nobody's saying that... I don't know. I guess she's considered a religious figure too, but <laughs> but the point is that this is this is a really powerful point and just don't don't skip on this that there are others just like muhammad in history that defy logic and achieved great things in life whether or not the epileptic i mean she's been described as epileptic which is even more a powerful point you know an even more powerful point but regardless just wanted to basically mm -hmm. just let that sink in before we continue to the next how could how could a orphan illiterate man from mecca get the power and muster the courage to change all of arabia right <laughs> it's the same exactly. thing how is this possible how did it can't be a coincidence it must be that the creator of the universe mm -hmm. came down and intervened and <laughs> made this happen right no it couldn't just be that they were like you know it, it's it's almost like the argument for design like oh we just happen to find ourselves on a perfectly designed planet well no shit you know all the other planets are inhospitable for life mm -hmm. They could never evolve life. So we just happen to be on the one that it's the same thing that all of the other prophets that never became famous, they didn't have the right conditions present and the right circumstances. So now mm -hmm. we look back and we, we're, we're using post hoc rationalization. But, you know, well, yeah, tying into your point is the next slide and Muslims will love it because it's about oh. <laughs> Another false prophet. <laughs> so this one's very interesting because this is Mirza Ghulam Ahmad's own book. It's written by himself, Hakikatul Wahi, the reality of revelation. Okay. And this was this like proof of prophethood. Now, in this book, he admits funny thing, I have suffered from two ailments for a long time. The first is migraine, due to which I used to become very restless, and horrifying complaints would develop. I suffered from this illness for 25 years. Who else suffered from migraines? Muhammad used to cup his head. He had unilateral uh, headaches. I was afflicted with dizziness. Ooh, fainting, dizziness, loss of balance, syncope. Physicians opine that these disorders ultimately lead to epilepsy. Accordingly, my elder brother, Mirza Ghulam Qadir, after suffering from this ailment for about two months, fell victim to epilepsy. 
and this is what he died of. So now we have a genetic hereditary component to it. Therefore, I continue to supplicate to God Almighty that he may safeguard me. Now, on one occasion, I perceived in a vision that an evil spirit in the form of a black animal with four feet, which had the height of a sheep having long hair and black claws, was about to attack me. It was instilled in my heart that this indeed was epilepsy. I struck its chest forcefully with my right hand and said, go away, you have no part in me. Hence, God knows that all those dangerous complaints subsided and that severe pain completely disappeared. I only suffer from occasional dizziness so that the prophecy relating to the two yellow sheets may not be affected. This is insanely shocking because this is happening in the early 1900s, right? Where epilepsy is still not fully understood. We're still learning about complex partial seizures, petite mal seizures, opson seizures. And this guy says he has headaches, migraines, he's dizziness, he sees visions, his voices, his family has components of epilepsy. He has hyper-religiosity, invents his own sect of Islam, claims prophethood, claims that he's Jesus reincarnated, he's Messiah or Mahdi coming back. Do you now not see that this guy probably was suffering from a case of some form of epilepsy? Very, very. This When I found this one out, I was like, wow, just wow. You know, this also so funny how he's describing the exact same thing that Muhammad said that the the devil came to him in the prayer <laughs> and he choked him and felt a spit on his hand and this and that. And he's doing the exact. I'm, I'm just stunned. Why did he say it's epilepsy? <laughs> Why would he say that? <laughs> he's giving it a naturalistic ex. Why would he do that? This is his own book. Yeah, this is his. It's, it's his own book. What, why is he saying he has epilepsy? It's, it's written by Mirza Ghulam Ahmad from a first-person perspective, from what it seems like I perceived, I did, my brother. <laughs> this is wild. It's like he's undoing the the miraculousness of uh, prophecy, prophethood, or whatever you want to call it, Mahdihood, or being Mahdihood. <laughs> by by describing it in materialistic terms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, this is like wild. This is wild. Did he not? Maybe you're right. Maybe he didn't know that this. That I guess he didn't know the newest science of it. I guess he didn't mm-hmm. realize that this, this this explains his prophethood. Well, I guess when I found this one, I was just blown away. I was just blown away by this one. But this yeah. is wild. This is this is too much. I, we got to get reason on faith to make an episode on his show just for this uh, we should make a clip maybe and post it on x ahmadiyya reddit because this is wild mm-hmm. this is like checkmate toward the material like in his He's... from his own words you know <laughs> he was scared of being epileptic imagine i can imagine muhammad if he was alive today like mistakenly lighting oh no remember, <laughs> epileptic attack muhammad was scared too because remember what he said in the beginning I yeah. fear I'm going insane. I hear yeah. a voice and I see a light and I fear there's jinn possession or madness inside me. And then he said he wanted to kill himself because he didn't want the... And then he got called. Muhammad was himself scared of the exact same thing Mirza Ghulam Ahmed is scared of. That's crazy. Except Ghulam Ahmed used the word epilepsy. Yeah. He explicitly, is... yeah. Oh, man. And his brother wild. was diagnosed with it too. Whoa. And he died from it. So that's a confirmation of genetic factors there for sure. Damn, that is that similar is to checkmate right there. It's just like done. Yeah. The only thing is Muslim Sunni Muslims can't really use this argument, can they? Yeah, because 
it's a rock in a hard place. So, anyways, <laughs> let's go to the next slide. We have Richard Doddridge Blackmore. He's uh, known as R.D. Blackmore, was one of the most famous novelists of the second half of the 19th century. He studied law and was called to the bar. However, he suffered from epilepsy and was forced to live in difficult circumstances for some years. Until unexpectedly, he came to a considerable fortune. He settled down and decided his life, dedicated his life to fruit growing and writing. And then he became a very famous author of his time. Uh, again, not as famous as Dostoevsky and some other ones that are coming up with some very interesting details. But as you can see, you have victorianweb.org, uh, WordWords, Editon, and the museum website stating that he was epileptic. Next up, now we're going to Fyodor Dostoevsky's gates. He's an epileptic and he said something. He compared his seizure and then named Muhammad. Very, very interesting. So Fyodor Dostoevsky is considered one of the greatest Russian writers of all time. He's known to have epilepsy. He's described his own seizures clearly in few instances. Uh, but that, we have discussed this prior as well. It's a very famous case. Let's go to the next slide where we get a little bit more deeper into what he experienced from his epilepsy. Mm -hmm. Dostoevsky is uh, frequently quoted by Jordan Peterson, by the way. Those mm. know. Yeah, he's... That's interesting. So uh, Dostoevsky's case shares many similarities with Muhammad. So we're going to start from the bottom left. Here we see uh, his face changed queerly and a frightened look came into his eyes a few minutes past. And then in a hollow voice, he said, where am I? He went out of the room, but then he was found shaking. Dostoevsky was found guilty of conspiracy with the revolutionary movement. And then during the extremely difficult period, he had many uh, generalized convulsions. Now here. At the age of seven, he had an episode of auditory hallucination, a frightening scream, possibly related to a mysterious upset event that happened in his family. In 1837, his mother died. In the same year, he suffered from some type of nervous breakdown, and he had a transient aphonia, probably of functional origin. Two years thereafter, his father passed away. So this young child, he's losing his parents, his caretakers, his grandparents. At a very young age, Muhammad's dad passed away before he was born. Muhammad's mom passed away when he was six. Muhammad's grandfather passed away when he was eight, and then he's given it to his uncle. Similar issues, childhood trauma, traumatic events in childhood can leave lasting scars that uh, emotional trauma is physical trauma at the anatomical level, and that can cause seizures, as we saw about stress. <clears throat> Uh, he said he also suffered a violent seizure during a funeral. Now, <clears throat> he also said he had attacks of stabbing headaches, uh, memory impairments, muscle switches, foam on his lips, difficulty of breathing, and rapid pulse. The attacks lasted for 15 minutes by the habitual exhaustion. Like Muhammad would be fatigued, be overtaken by signs of torpor. In 1853, he had another attack, and since then, they... Re they recur regularly at the end of each month, so they come at expectedly at expected times. Uh, but yeah, Dostoevsky is crazy. Now, the next slide, Dostoevsky mentions Muhammad in his novels. Uh, if you can't see this text on the left-hand side, I'll read it for you. Uh, so we have uh, probably this is the very second, which was not long enough for the water to be spilt out of Muhammad's pitcher. Though the epileptic prophet had time to gaze at the habitations of Allah. So another thing I'm going to tell you guys right now. When I was naming this series, I took the name from Dostoevsky. He called Muhammad the epileptic prophet. And now I'm telling you, 
uh, you see in his novel, The Idiot, he says about Muhammad and he compares his uh, own seizures um, uh, to Muhammad's through a character he's created where he says, no doubt the epileptic Muhammad refers to that same moment when he says that he visited all the dwellings of Allah in less time than he was needed to empty his pitcher of water. So he saw these habitations of Allah and Dostoevsky saying that this is kind of like a seizure that he's also had. Uh, and he described this and he's to this character, Mishkin. Uh, but yeah, very, very fascinating that a fellow epileptic is saying that, yeah, Muhammad yes. probably was epileptic. And he's also a writer if, too. I wonder if uh, Farid is going to tell Dostoevsky, how dare you diagnose Muhammad? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, now let's go to the next slide. Uh, we have Van Gogh diagnosed for epilepsy and admitted to mental institutes. Uh, so head bandage, he also obsessively, instead of sending his brother Theo one letter a day as he had done before, he went through three letters a day. Uh, the storm within, as he called his typical seizure, consisted of hallucinations, unprovoked feelings of anger, confusion, and fear, and floods of early memory that disturbed him because they were outside his control. In one such seizure, he saw again every room at the house in Zundort, uh, where he had been born, every path, every plant in the garden. And on the right side, there were a couple of uh, doctors who uh, corresponded, and they said the diagnosis of epilepsy and recommendation with Van Gogh is most probably likely. These were doctors of his time, like contemporary doctors diagnosing. So it's not like Van Gogh somebody's writing about it no 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 there was physical doctors examining van gogh and they said he had epilepsy uh this is from Abe laplante's book uh getting very close to the end now uh we are gonna go to the next slide uh, and we have lorna byron so she's a schizophrenic i want to tell you something and this is a very interesting case lorna byron is an irish author and peace ambassador she's best known for her best-selling memoir angels in my hair a message for hope and love from the angels uh debuted net number one is on the uk sunday times book chart her books have been translated into 30 languages and published in over 50 countries she's a very very well published best-selling author so interesting read how her uh authorship started lorna Byron was born in the 50s in ireland i was growing up and she was known as dyslexic. She was diagnosed as retarded. I'm not using that word in the derogatory way. So inverted commas, she was labeled as retarded as a child due to her dyslexia. And this was by a physician in her, in her life. Uh, now, on the right side, funnily enough, uh, she says that God's from a very early age, the angels told Lorna that she would write a book about them. She used to laugh when they said it, telling them it was unlikely because she had dyslexia as she could hardly read or write. The same thing Muhammad said, I can't read or write. So the angel is talking to this lady and she's saying, write her something about us. And she's like, I can't read or write. I can't do it. And then she ends up writing her book because she uses a speech to text software and she ended up actually writing a book orally. Like Muhammad, he composed it orally and then she got it published. Uh, I have one of her videos you want to watch a lot more, you can, but we're just going to briefly go over one of her videos to see how she sees it. Going to Michael, sometimes he would appear so human mm -hmm. to say, like you. Yeah. Going to Michael, sometimes he would appear so human. 
to say like you. Yes. He would appear that that human. And he has been out walking and talking with me. Mm. And I I always remember, like it's in the book there, mm -hmm. you know, the priest, he was dressed like a priest. Right. And the priest coming towards us said, hello, father, to Michael. <laughs> they ignored me completely because I was a woman, like, you mm. know, and he acknowledged them. And they never noticed he was an angel. And I to find it amazing that people don't. Mm. I would say to people, if you see a human being that looks so perfect. It might be an angel, right? More than likely it is. Mm. Like even another place where um, the angel hostess, you know, appeared humanly. You mm. know, just, I, I haven't written about it now or anything like that, but I was invited to this party now i seldom go to things right yeah. okay and but i went to this one mm -hmm. and there was a huge crowd of people there mm -hmm. and i was saying to the angels you know i was could see the guardian angel with everyone and i could see all the other angels around and i was saying you know i just feel like a sort of common among all these people i don't know if, you know i just felt yeah. so odd you know and you know, and they said, Lorna, you'd be all right. You're meant to be here and all of that. And, you know, go over and say hello. And I go and say hello. And the angel hostess appears, you know. And in such a human form, even today, I find it hard that people didn't didn't see, see him. Mm -hmm. um, I always remember there was this kind of, you know, like settees and, and this, this, mm -hmm. this room. And it was a large room. And they were always full. With angels. No, with, with people, people. With people. With people. Right. <laughs> but this is what hostess did. Don't ask me how he cleared one of the sofas of people. He just... And he stretched out on that sofa, you know, like, you know... You were the only one you could see him or every... No one sat on that sofa. That's funny. So even though they didn't see him... They just... They left the sofa empty. That was just so and you could see him And I could see him there, and I was just laughing, and he was just teasing me in a sense, saying, "Come on, smile, cheer up, it's okay," you know, all he's of like that. He's like your playful angel, isn't he? He's yeah, like, you know, like... and I am amazed that no one saw him because loads of people came over mm -hmm. to the couch to sit down, mm -hmm. but they changed. That's wild. It sounds like, uh, you know, the confabulations there where there's no one sitting on the sofa. So, of course, the angel went and laid down on the sofa that no one was laying down on. It sounds like her mind is making up things to explain what she's... Anyways. Oh, no, man. I was I was yeah, watching yeah. her other videos where she talks about uh, behind every person there's a light and then kind of similar to how lights on the shoulders of two angels it's, it's wild angels with you everywhere mm -hmm. he'll see angels running around everywhere like muhammad would see in 12 angels running around in the mosque and stuff uh, but yeah uh, you can look into her more we're gonna go to the next and very very famous case now mr l ron hubbard uh so uh, what do we have for him uh so he was very well known to be uh, he was diagnosed uh, by some doctors as schizoparanoid schizophrenia. His wife went on it's on the left side in the black text. Uh, but yeah, he, if you want to pause and read that, he was part of a bunch of different mental institutes, went back and forth between a bunch of psychiatrists and hated psychiatry so much that he rated up Dianetics, which was the whole point of his own study or field or new type of psychiatry that he came up with. 
and all the Xenu and all that stuff and Tetans and stuff. But yeah, this guy ended up also holding the world record for a while for the most books authored by a single person at 1,084. And that's a Guinea's Book of World Record. A guy wrote a thousand books, this paranoid schizophrenic guy. And that also points to like, you know, hypergraphy and that these people can create influence and can gather a lot of people to their cause. Uh, but yeah, <clears throat> just to just show you that yeah, this is not an anomaly. This is very well no now we're gonna quickly go over a couple of cases uh, one more case we have saint brigida famous saint we covered this last year she most likely suffered from epilepsy the operation sensation of fear so let's look what it says on the left side uh we see that the answer is certainly yes if some of her revelations fit the aura of temporal epilepsy brigida described herself the sensation felt during a revelation as being carried away in a spiritual vision in which the body sank into a numbness though not the numbness of sleep and then uh, the virgin revealed herself was terrified by the wonderful apparition so she was also scared at first like muhammad by gabriel not knowing what to do considering her own infirmity and fearing that it was a deception by the devil same like muhammad he thought he was going insane and then Muhammad didn't know uh, if he was an angel. So she, ha she, like Muhammad, had to go to another guy. In Muhammad's case, it was Waraka. This one here is Father Matthias, who had convinced her that, no, in fact, this is really from God. You're not crazy. You're, from, you're talking to some angel guy. Uh, but very similar. Uh, it was he who taught her the symbolism. And yeah, Brigida was seven, between seven and 10 when she had her childhood revelations the first time. It was not until her 40s that any other revelations started coming out. Similar to Muhammad, there was a dormancy or emission period in his adolescence and the early adulthood. Uh, now we go to the next slide. It's also about St. Brigida. We're just going to quickly go over some other interesting things. <clears throat> the left says, say, temporal epilepsy is associated with visual, auditory, smell, and taste sensations and autonomic cognitive and affective symptoms uh so she would smell those rotten smells before the uh the seizure began uh she also sometimes saw a glowing globe of uh, light another common aura is epigastric rising the cutting and the rising funny feeling in the chest and the belly <clears throat> Uh, she frequently experienced repetitive movements in the epigastric region described as movements like the form like from an unborn baby but under her heart these movements became more prominent the deeper brigida prayed they were mentioned in the canonization speech by matthias now one last thing that's very very interesting about brigida's uh, characteristic of her revelations are powerful images that are very concrete and full of detail some of the descriptions are along with the stream of very gruesome details uh for example hell her descriptions are purgatory and shocking and macabre a demon's vomit venom of virulent colors hideous bodies pass by the demons have tridents and claws which they plunge into the heart stomachs and feet of victims they scream like lunatics when devil ravaged a couple that had married without the church's ordination so that in the end everything looked like a ball the demon's cat soul stabbed them and then crushed them between their teeth. Several experts on Brigida have described her as fast, earnest, and even breathless in her storytelling. In many texts, uh, her own descriptions are kept 
uh, you can see that they're pretty violent. Now, this almost sounds identical to when Muhammad went on the Mirage journey where he was walking by the angels. He was seeing these angels crushing people's heads with rocks or adultery or riba or whatever. And they had claws and clawing at them. And it's just so, so, so similar. It's almost the same person. Exactly. It's what I was thinking too when you when you was reading this. I'm like, this sounds exactly like the Isra al Miraj. And not only that, it's consistent with the Quran too, where you're feeding people pus and they're eating, drinking boiling water and burning oil on their heads and shit. So you kind of see a similar violence protrude in the message as well. Now, um, with all of this aside, we are done with the famous cases section. Uh, we are going to do one more slide, and this is going to be regarding Dr. Hassan Aziz, who wrote a paper about Muhammad's epilepsy. And I just wanted to refute this one paper uh, because Muslims love using this, but also to point out some critical flaws and critical errors and some manipulations he employs. Uh, just to show you that how, like him, most Muslim uh, scholars are try to uh, talk about the epilepsy argument or they suffer from these shortcomings. So let's start. And this is very important. So on the left side, top left, we see Dr. Hassan Aziz asserts uh, randomly that uh, these signs and symptoms of discomfort endured by the prophet were because there, there's a divine human transfer of revelations. Okay, and he goes on to say that above the human world, there is a spiritual world and that the human soul must be prepared to exchange humanity for angelicality in order to become part of the angelic species at any time in a single instant. This is a science paper, guys. He provides no evidence for his claim that the angelicity exists and this exchange needs to happen. And then he goes on to claim that this just happens. So he asserts the existence of souls and angels in this angelic realm. But that so would this, be is, this is a, a, a doctor that made a scientific paper about Muhammad not having epilepsy? Yes. And we're going to refute that and show you how, how he defends the argument is based on critical flaws and lies again. And this is the one you, we was actually planning to contact the paper, right? Yes, the, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and you'll see why, because there are some critical errors. So, for example, in, and he calls these uh, peri-revelatory episodes, right? Uh, so in one on the bottom left, he sees, it needs. this is talking about the uh, first revelation. He says, it needs to be noted that Muhammad was fully conscious throughout this entire episode. Again, lies that Muhammad was fully conscious and aware during the first revelation. We go to our section on fainting in the first revelation section. We see that Muhammad was swooning, fainting, and in and out of consciousness by his own description. And in some narrations, he was completely knocked out. He woke up after. Uh, so that's one lie. Now, on the right side, he goes, he then suggests that uh, this singular event without any subsequent definitive signs and symptoms that suggestive of epilepsy exclude the diagnosis of epilepsy. Now, he seems to suggest that Prophet had only a singular seizure, uh, which is a lie. He had multiple seizures. Uh, you can refer to the convulsions, fainting, and snorting sections. He then also said that the Prophet only had one fainting episode, which is a big-ass lie because we showed that there's like, there's a fainting section with about 30 slides. There's a lethargy and fatigue section. And it covers Sunni and Shia hadith to just to show you that, again, this is a lie. Uh, then he goes on to say that uh, this is the only uh, thing that is uh, closest to a convulsion or epileptic convulsion. 
And he again refutes the idea of epilepsy by saying that Muhammad only had one seizure. And he says that it's uh, you have to have two seizures or one seizure with a high risk of recurrence. So uh, the Prophet, in fact, did have very high risk of recurrence. In fact, it was not merely a risk, but proven over the span of his life uh, via his repeated seizures. And as a doctor seems to suggest it only happened once, no, it did happen numerous times, as we've seen through the course of this series. Uh, now, another interesting one he says is, all the PREs were accompanied by Quranic revelation. This is just blatantly false. Uh, in fact, we showed that uh, sometimes Muhammad would get revelation where he would have a seizure. Uh, sorry, he would get a seizure with no revelation. Sometimes he would get a seizure. The angel would tell him what it was, but he would forget the revelation. And then he had seizures before becoming a prophet, hearing voices and all that, which also refutes this as well. Uh, then let's see, what else does he say? Uh, he seems to assert that the Prophet was awake and sharp after his revelations and seizures like Farid's cousin, but we had the fatigue and lethargy section that showed clearly that the Prophet was not sharp. Again, he makes another lie and assertion that he can't substantiate. Uh, in conclusion, what we'll see with these kind of papers, they're built on making these very interesting manipulations of the evidence, saying that the evidence doesn't exist when it does. And ironically, in this case, he says the prophet should be awake, sharp, and whatnot. And that the guy, the author, suspects or expects to find Muhammad to be slow, lethargic, and fatigued after the epilepsy, uh, epileptic attacks. He doesn't realize that that is exactly what we find in their own books. And that's the ironic bits. Uh, now, I've, this marks the conclusion of probably the whole series. Uh, we've gone through a lot of evidence. We've talked about a lot of things. We have some miscellaneous slides I just want to go over. Uh, we're going to go over like a four or five slides, just quickly swiftle through them. Uh, these are mostly from last year. Uh, so let's go there. This is a uh, slide number 436. Uh, this is the role of psychotic disorders in religious history considered. There's uh, three, four doctors here. Analysis reveals that these individuals had experiences that resemble those now defined as psychotic symptoms, suggesting that their experiences may have been manifestations of primary or mood disorders associated with psychotic disorders. Who are they talking about? They're talking about religious figures such as Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and St. Paul. On the right side, in the conclusion, they say, we suggest that some of civilization's most significant religious figures may have had psychotic symptoms that contributed inspiration for the revelations. It is hoped that the analysis will engender scholarly dialogue about the rational limits of human experience and to serve and educate the general public. Uh, but yeah, even these scholars say that uh, at the end after this, uh, about the possibility that persons with primary mood disorders associated psychotic spectrum disorder, disorders have had a monumental influence on our civilization. Uh, right on. There's a couple more papers. If you want to go through, we'll just, I don't even want to talk about them. This one mentions a few cases that you can look into, a couple of books, a couple of papers. Those are from last year as well, from the first presentation we did. Uh, but yeah, this concludes the presentation. Now, I had some things to talk about, uh, some possible. Um, so, for example, like we just talked about uh, Dr. Hassan Aziz, as we see that uh, he is 
not doing full justice to the argument, he also brings out, uh, uh, he tries to downplay the number of events or the seizures and stuff. Uh, similarly, we have references like, for example, Haikal, he will also write a paragraph about Muhammad saying, oh, he didn't have epilepsy. Michael's obviously Muslim. Uh, but there are other scholars too, like Daniel Peterson or Karen Armstrong. Uh, she wrote a book about Muhammad's life. And she, in, in, the, in the book, mentions that he doesn't think he has epilepsy. Uh, but the fact is that all these scholars, when you look at their idea of what the, they saw in Muhammad as epilepsy symptoms and stuff, is remarkably short of what could be identified. Uh, in fact, in my research, I identified way more uh, than most people brought up way more uh, uh, points. The objections that these people might bring uh, to defend Muhammad from epilepsy, in fact, are similar to what Dr. Hassan Aziz did, where he says, oh, he fainted only once, but no, he fainted a few times, you know, more than once. So these kind of lies and manipulations were the not doing the full justice to the argument. Uh, now I wanted to get into some, uh, some objections. They might say, so why do you quote sources that don't agree with your conclusion? Uh, this is just such so funny. It's like saying that why do Muslims quote sources from non-Muslim academics that don't necessarily agree with their conclusions, right? You can find a paper or a book or a piece of work, and then you can find a relevant source or a reference in there that you want to critique or analyze. So you can take that excerpt and you can still disagree with the author at the conclusion of what your analysis is. This is normal. This is not... Uh, not controversial at all. So for example, if I quote Heikel's bringing four hadith on trembling and then him saying, oh, he doesn't think Muhammad's epileptic. This is not controversial because I add more evidence to it. Same with uh, Daniel Peterson and uh, Karen Armstrong. Uh, but with that and, aside... And, um, and of course, um, you know, we're not looking at... We're, we're presenting sources from the tradition, from the tradition, right? So... If we don't believe in the tradition, that doesn't mean we can't quote the, the sources for people that do believe in the tradition. We're having a conversation with believers. Hey, believers, these are the the sources from your book. And what do you think about these? If you if you reject these sources, well, welcome to our club. <laughs> you know, we don't even need to discuss this anymore. But if you do, then okay, okay, let's have a conversation. Um, there's a question for you, Abdul Gondal, uh, mm -hmm. from a friend Yusuf Zai. What's your plan, your next plan after this? Does this research finally, without any doubt, close the chapter of Islam for you? And then also, based on the comments I was discussing, he said, okay, if it is, if that was already the case, that, you know, Islam was already done or whatever, then what's the plan for you next in terms of debunking research, stuff like that? I mean, first of all, I want to take a little bit of a break. <laughs> this, was, this was a huge, took a lot of time, a lot out of me. Uh, just living inside of this guy's delusional thinking head, like I, I mean, Muhammad isn't isn't fun, isn't easy finding all this. Just constantly searching for seizures, psychotic things. This is. Uh, I'll take a break. I might. I'll do an Urdu version of it probably. Uh, but that's just gonna be the same stuff. Just me speaking in Urdu. The Harris, uh, the documentary. I might make one. Don't know how quickly when, yet. Uh, for me, for debunking Islam, I mean, there are so many things you can do. You can go down like the morality of Muhammad, the problem with the Quran, Quranic revelation, the nature of Muhammad's revelations, is the Quran preserved? There's so many ways you can debunk Islam. And honestly, Islam 
to me is not a special ideology. It shares the exact expected traits and things you would find with any ideology from that era and time expected. From an anthropological perspective, it's not even unique. You can find very, very uh, uh, normal explanations to why Islam spread due to the politics of the time where the Romans and Greeks were fighting with a po power pocket and this vacuum just preceded by the Justinian plague is similar to what happened with the Arab Spring and then ISIS coming up in 2014 because of power pocket and stuff. Uh, so these things you can talk about. Uh, but uh, I mean, I don't know. There's so many things. I don't know exactly what I'm going to do right now. I'm just glad that I've been able to get through this. There's more I can add to this, like a section more about the uh, the death of Muhammad, how he died. So just to quickly give people a brief synopsis as Muhammad started having huge headaches. He then had severe fevers. Uh, if you have a severe fever, it, uh, after a stroke, that is a bad, bad sign. He lost motion in both of his legs. He had to be dragged. There were hadith there. He's lost his speech for a while. He couldn't speak. He kept fainting over and over again. So uh, these things may indicate he had a stroke before he died again. It's not really... I just didn't want to add it in here. Uh, there are multiple references. There's another reference where he was delirious at the end where there was revelation coming to him. Apparently the fastest and the most frequent, this is in sunnah.com, you can pull it out, when he was sick nearing his death. But then those verses, where are they? Where is that revelation? Then there's the uh, the day of, the, I don't know if it's the, the calamity of the Thursday or something where Muhammad was giving them instructions to write something at Omar and some Sahaba said, oh, Muhammad has just lost his mind. Don't listen to him. He's about to die. So stuff like this. But uh, again, that's not central to the argument itself because we have so much evidence apart from that. Besides that, uh, yeah, uh, I can quickly do a quick uh, quick summary of what we've discussed this whole thing. Uh, or we can just take a few calls, whatever you'd like to do now. Yeah, I think summary would be good. And um, the second part of the question was, you know, basically, does this does this put the final nail in the coffin for Islam for you? The final nail in the coffin for Islam. I mean, yeah, this is beyond a shadow of a doubt. Like, <laughs> this kills it. This just this kills it. Uh, but I mean, this attacks the core of Islam. This attacks the core 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 of islam in, in such a unique sharp way where you're going at the source you're saying muhammad the source your only source to contact god is so fundamentally flawed in the most interesting ways that from a historical perspective this guy would not be considered reliable or trustworthy by by any standard right and that's something that's very, very important for us to drive home. His memory problems, his own cognitive deficits, uh, his fainting. He was not of a sound mind. He was not psychologically all there. Uh, his whole life, actually, after he accepted his prophethood, became a delusion. He thought he was the prophet of God and everything became about Islam. And when you think about it, everything, everything Muhammad did after that point was influence somehow tied into Allah telling him this or that and that is what it is Islam became his psychosis and Islam is his psychosis and we're still dealing with the aftermath of it because at the mm -hmm. end of it Islam is nothing more than this angel coming to Muhammad but everything think about it 
Allah, Gabriel, Mala, uh, Malik, Ridwan, all these angels, all the huris he saw, the heaven, the hell, the torture in hell he saw, the sex he saw in heaven. It's all coming from here. It's all in here. It's all his delusion. And we have this, this ridiculous ideology where you go to heaven, you're having sex with these transparent virgins with perky boobs. And if you go to hell, God is pouring boiling oil over you. Like this creates a psychotic, tortured idea of God too, because it's coming from a flawed mind. Uh, but yeah, if you want, I can do a quick, uh, quick, quick yeah. uh, recap. Let me so, just uh, add a few comments. Um, mm -hmm. So for those of you who have enjoyed the series, please do consider donating and, you know, support Gondol do, to do more of his research. And the channel, if you'd like to support the channel as well, do consider joining my Patreon. That's also an option. Or you can join the channel. Click join now below. Um, the channel is growing slowly, but it is growing. And, you know, hopefully we can actually counter some of the Dawa guys out there that have huge channels. And, you know, there's a lot of work. Unfortunately, the, the, the nature of the game is very uneven. You have the Dawa guys with so much money. They have million-dollar budgets. I mean, we're talking the Akin Institute. We're talking Aida. We're talking Sapient. We're talking millions of dollars of funding, full-time dais, whereas, you know, both of us, we have our lives. We also work full-time. You know, Gondol has his school as well, studies. On top of that, you know, we're doing this. So the, the money is used in order to hire and get, things done that I cannot do myself. I have someone helping me right now. He's in India and he's doing some of the editing for me and I'm hoping to put out a lot more content. So the money does basically get converted into time savings for me and is most appreciated. So if you can help out in that sense, that's great. If you can't, that's okay. We're going to continue doing this anyways. You can help us out in other ways. You can share this content, the epileptic profit, Right. We want this to go viral. We want people to, to the way this stuff usually works is, you know, as time goes by, it gets distilled further and further and further. People are already copying this content and uploading mirrors to the channel. You know, clips are going to appear. People are going to start talking about it on the shows. That's what we want. We want this to happen. We want you to discuss it with others. We want you to share it with others. In regards to Yusuf Zai's um, question about the, is this a final nail in the coffin? I mean, honestly, this the nail in the coffin has been like five years ago for me and for Abdullah Gondo. Like when we first talked, like we were already like 100% done. It's just that as time goes by, like the more you look, the more holes you see. <laughs> it's not, it's gone from like, you know, like, you know, solid cheese to like Swiss cheese to like, there's only, there's only holes now and there's no cheese. It's just like, it gets worse and worse and worse the more you look because it's a man-made ideology that's, you know, contradicts itself from all over the place. Mm -hmm. It has its barber, you know, it's barbaric. It's inhumane. It's, it's misogynistic. It's frankly, like, the, the, the nail in the coffin was like, like gone, 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 yeah. gone, gone. Like, like, you know, we're, we're, what we're doing now is it's not for us. It's like, mm -hmm. It's for everybody else, right? For because not everybody sees things the same way. For some people, you know, especially for uh, women, you know, it tends to be Muhammad's bad behavior towards the towards women and and how Islam treats women bad. It, a lot of women don't are not comfortable, are not happy with the Aisha thing, her being a child, right? It doesn't sit well with them. For other people, it's a science. For other people, it's a history. For other people, it's now you know the neurology. The scientific mm -hmm. evidence behind the new so, so there's lots of different things that work for different people we're just trying to help the most amount of people possible so yeah that's what i have to say 
to that you can add whatever you like gondol and then you can if you like you can even just summarize uh, i did put a link for people to call in if they want we'll keep it open for 10 15 minutes mm. um but go ahead and you can summarize while we wait yeah so i'll go through call. a quick summary that i've written about the main point so first off we see muhammad had a traumatic birth uh, this was exemplified by him losing his father before his birth then the birth itself uh was traumatic as in he's reported to come out with his mom with his head raised he didn't come out like a normal baby uh his uh umbilical cord is said to be cut up uh he's born with apostia then uh his mom is also suspected to have seen and heard voices and lights after that he was given away his foster parents thought he was possessed and they returned him because he had the chest cutting incident that happened with him where he was washed of his heart by two angels and whatnot. Uh, this was repeated at the age of 10 and then at the cave of Hira and then at before the Miraj incident as well. And the time of adolescence, so Muhammad also lost his mother after being returned and then he lost his grandfather. After that, there's an incident where Muhammad was slapped by an angel with his eyes rolled towards the heaven when he was carrying rocks, his cousin and people, some people thought he might be crazy. Uh, then Muhammad, before Prophet, started hearing rocks and trees talk to him. He then starts hanging out in caves. And then he is also allegedly exercised for jinn possession before he became a prophet. Muhammad then, when he has his first experience, starts doubting his own sanity, saying that, uh, I fear that I'm going insane or I'm uh, jinn possessed. He, in fact, needed a blind 80-year-old Christian man to convince him it's Gabriel. He couldn't get himself to be convinced of that. In fact, he himself thought it was the Satan squeezing him like a ketchup bottle. He then had psychosis where he had said that he had depression. He was extremely sad. Revelation paused and he would go up the mountains of uh, uh, Jabal Nur and Sabir or some other mountains to commit suicide. But then he'd hear a voice and he would stop. This is consistent with what you'd expect. Uh, he would also have convulsions, foaming at the mouth, go red or pale, snorting like a camel, have severe sweating and fainting and lethargy symptoms. His teeth would clatter and his lips would smack. He also had uh, episodic amnesia and forgot the revelation at times, or forgot if he had sex with his wife, would twist and lose consciousness and fall down, had a huge fainting problem. He also had an altered uh, sexuality that was first uh, hypo and then later on with time bent had huge bouts of hypersexuality. He was prone to violence as a solution to problems. He was highly easily irritable and offended and would order the murder of a lot of people. Uh, he was constantly involved in warfare, sending out armies. In fact, most of his uh, last 10 years, he had like, what, 70 wars almost or raids and battles he dispatched or took part in. Uh, he had hypergraphia. He would rhyme a lot. Uh, or at least started rhyming in the beginning, we saw how compulsive rhyming can come out as a temporal epilepsy symptom. Uh, he obviously exhibited clear textbook signs of OCD and scrupulosity. He had a delusional outlook on the world where he's hanging out with genies, angels every day. He's fighting uh, demons. He's choking demons. Genies come talk to him, hang out with him. All sorts of batshit crazy stuff. The craziest of the crazy stuff you can imagine this guy has done. He would go to the graveyard at night, talk to the, pray for the people, hear dead people being tortured in the graves and whatnot. When you view this all together, uh, from looking from a broader perspective, from an outsider, and you can look down at this guy's personality, you can clearly see clearly see that islam is a product of a delusional mind 
There is absolutely no doubt if you after going through this, you can try to say, okay, maybe he didn't have exactly maybe epilepsy. He might have had some form of some other mental illness, but there was something definitely of a neurological nature underlying his condition. That was a brief, quick uh, synopsis of uh, the whole argument. Uh, we have so much more. I mean, I can't do justice. Yeah. We have 20 hours almost worth of content in the by now. Do watch it. There's so much interesting stuff. But yeah, if you have any callers, if you have any people that want to join in, we how's have it going? I'm fine. I have a, a question for you know for you. It's been a while since I uh, started watching your channel, and I got interested in certain topics. Um, I'm from Colorado here in the U.S. Um, well, I I wanted to know: is there a a clear distinction between uh, psychological disorders and demonic possession, or are there some overlapping um, explanations between the two fields? I, I, uh, I'll let Abdullah Gondal speak to it. I'm just going to say one thing. I'm, we're both atheists and we don't believe in demonic possessions. We don't even believe in demons. Like the, the whole point of this, this series was to show that there's a materialistic, a.k.a. naturalistic explanation for what's happening this entire revelation, as Abdullah Gandhi was saying, none of this is exclusive to Islam. This would apply to all prophets, to all, not all religions, but like the Abrahamic foundations, they all, they're all on the same, you know, they all fall apart as well. Um, Abdullah Gandhi, is that accurate? Um, for me, I mean, there are no demons again. Demonic possessions are just uh, misinterpretations or confused states in these episodes. Uh, the overlap happens in some ways where people get scared is as the amygdala get triggers, which is a deeper structure in the brain related fear. If you have seizures spreading to that, you'll have insane sensations of fear and confusion, which are similar to what Muhammad experienced. And a lot of people who uh, suffer from uh, epilepsy or schizophrenia when they have their episodes, they, they do go through those things. So that might cause... Uh, and we also know that when you have fear or when you're scared, your frontal lobe starts tends to shut down, so you can't critically think as much. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, why do we people see scary images or humanoid figures, right? So your brain is so interconnected when these seizures are spreading, they're tinkling or leaking electrical signals into, mm -hmm. let's say, occipital lobe, which is the biggest part of the brain, right? So the occipital, when it's getting some uh, messages, you start seeing things in your vision. Uh, similar to sleep paralysis. If one very good example of demonic possession overlapping with modern neurology would be sleep paralysis, where we understand how the lower brain structures are having a communication problem with the higher brain structures where the brain is now confused that are you awake or not. So you think like you're being choked because your brain is still in the slow breathing phase, but your higher structures think you're awake. This creates this illusion where some people see a thing sitting on their chest or a genie strangling them and people will consistently report this black figure and you'll also see interestingly this appear in alien abduction stories sometimes uh but no there i would say this look into sleep paralysis that's a very good example to see a uh, 
an overlap of how people perceived psychiatric things and only now we're understanding the actual neurology behind it. Okay. That was uh, so can I say something else? I could have said. Yeah, sorry. I was going to say, Gondal, that was so beautifully answered. Way better than I could have ever answered that. Um, yeah, go ahead. You had something else you want to say? Yes. Um, my in you know, my intent was not to bring up the existence of demons, uh, mainly to address the literature of de demonology. We we see we see how um, certain psychiatrists and psychologists they have an understanding of demonology, even though they don't necessarily believe in the existence of demons. Um, because certain cases require you to have both knowledge in order to truly understand the people's perspectives and also uh, the neurological uh, aspect, uh, you know, of their uh, of their condition. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what I was referring to. Do you know? Uh, do you you know? Certain things can be explained uh, by science probably more than uh, spirituality. Um, but do, do you think there might have been an explanation, a demonological explanation for uh, his condition? So uh, I have a something, well, what I think might have happened is uh, cultures shape the kind of delusions you have. So, for example, if you're living in Middle East in that time, you're more likely to have an Abrahamic delusional idea with possession or God from their theology because the brain, right, it picks up whatever is around you and it will only uh, create those delusions from the pre-existing notions you'll have. So I think cultures of the culture you are in, being aware of that said culture will actually help the psychologist to determine, okay, this person might act or behave in a certain way or let's say, so in my, uh, some people I know, I'm not going to give too much information, but they get possessed by Hindu jinns, okay, because they live in Pakistan and their language and they start speaking Hindi even. But I know people I've met here, they only speak like English or French. So there's interesting cases of cultural things, or like uh, the, the Muslim girl that I know was possessed by a Hindu jinn because India and Hindus are right next to you. So the jinns that are possessing you also have religions and stuff. So yes, there are these kind of things you can talk about. But definitely the psychologist should be aware of the culture the patient's coming from so he can better understand how the patient's brain might confabulate the delusion in respect to the environment the patient is in. Okay, uh, that's good. Uh, thanks for your answers, guys. Um, I, I don't you. know if you recognize anything weird about my name. It's kind of uh, Hebrew. Jehovah, uh, Yahweh, and I had Google Makedesh is the name of God as well. It's another way of saying Jehovah or Yahweh. Yeah. Well, it's like sanctification, kind of like based like holiness. Uh, okay. The Makedesh is an abbreviation. It's too hmm. long. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, gonna... Thank you, guys. Yeah, yeah, no way. Yeah. I was going to say you have some other callers. So, yeah, thanks Not for the call. Good yeah. questions. No, very good questions. Good question. they, the culture shaping the delusions is very important because people living in different eras, their epilepsy will cause their brains to take the delusion confabulations from the, the culture they find themselves in.
Yep. Alrighty. Um, so a couple of things. Hold on a second. Before we take the, there's a couple of callers. Uh, before we take them, will the two Abdullahs be continuing <clears throat> with different topic? Yeah. Yes. We're yeah. not done. It's not. This is not the end of the channel or something. <laughs> I'm still gonna be uploading videos. We're still gonna be doing the two Abdullah show, just not on this topic. Um. Okay. So two more callers, and I I don't know how long you want to continue doing this for. Um. You can yeah, message. Let's me see how it goes. Yeah. Um. Keeping up with the two Abdullahs for a while, the intentions just to show the perspective in a civilized way. They're not pressuring anyone to believe anything exactly. Uh, we're just sharing our views. And um, I understand not everyone's comfortable with calling in. It's not easy to call in. It's not easy. There's a lot of people that watch this, and you know, it's it is difficult to to um, you know put yourself out there. So that's understandable. You don't have to come on camera. You can you can always just come on audio, audio you can only, feel comfortable yeah. you can type your question we can also answer it that way um but yeah regardless you know like this like abdul jabbar is saying dude i'm muslim why do you show that the reason why so in case anyone's wondering there was a, a brief pornographic clip that was posted um and the reason for that is because someone's trying to get the channel you know flagged or banned or whatever but I, i'm just gonna remove the clip i can edit the video right so it's not going to stop anything. It's, it's just silly. But yeah. anyways, thank you for, you know, coming and trying to sabotage our work. It's not going to work. Uh, it just makes us more motivated. So, yeah. And even Muslims are telling you, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, no, that was just this pathetic. I think nobody would stand up for anything yeah, like exactly. that. And exactly. That just shows how childish anybody is. I mean, yeah. Um, see if you have any other callers or any comments or anything. Yeah, let's see. Um, well, I don't see any any callers yet. Um, we will do the next episode on the topic of we don't know yet. We'll figure it out. Maybe we'll have a guest. Um, and about the slides, people are asking when are the slides coming. We will um announce that. We're trying to figure that out. Um, and we'll see what we can do. Okay, another troll. Okay. Uh, so it seems like it seems like people are just being childish here, and we're not getting anybody. But anyways, we had a great show, so we're gonna end on something positive here. Um, yeah, great show, and you know, fifteen-year-old uh, trolls, Muslim trolls that are obviously trying to hijack the channel. It's not. It's not gonna work. I don't really. <laughs> that's not gonna stop me. Um, but yeah, we can talk about uh, some possible objections or something like that. Yeah, uh, any any objections yeah. you've got on Twitter, we can talk about stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a uh, few things. Uh, Muslims are mad about why did I use Shia sources? Of course, I'm not bound to the Sunni method. No academic is. Most Western academics will tell you that the Sunni method is, of course, not the only method to approach Hadith. Uh, I mean, the Sunnis themselves don't agree within themselves. Uh, the Shias don't agree with the Sunni corpus. So to give you a holistic picture, to give you a broader perspective from Sunni, Shia, and secular sources, we went all around. Uh, that's the point. Uh, why did we use some weak hadith? We only use weak hadith where we could find a either uh, sahih hadith to corroborate it, or uh, uh, there's also the idea that uh, weak hadith are not fake hadith. Weak hadith can be uh, authentic as well. And especially if they're corroborating each other uh, and with numerous chains. And also there's the whole... Then another thing I wanted to bring up was the authenticity of the Mursal Hadith. So there's different scholars. I just found a paper where like uh, Imam 
Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal would accept Mursal Hadith, for, for example, while some other scholars would outright reject them. What is a Mursal Hadith? It doesn't go all the way back to the Prophet. It's cut off at the, uh, the Tabi'i or Sahabi sometimes. Uh, but yeah, uh, scholars sometimes don't agree with their own uh, grading of Hadith. One scholar will say it's Sahih, the other one will say it's Da'if. This is very common as well. Uh, regardless, we did point those anomalies out anyways, so there's nothing that was hidden per se. Uh, let's see, what else? The epilepsy of Muhammad is how God chose to communicate how, even if Muhammad does seem to exhibit epilepsy, maybe revelation seems like epilepsy or revelation is a for, uh, epilepsy is a form of revelation. So there are some objections like this. If you take that route that you think Allah was giving him epilepsy, that is, uh, it's hard to distinguish then which one is a real seizure, which one is uh, is Allah's given seizure, which one's uh, a hallucination from the epilepsy, which one was a real angel, uh, stuff like that. Uh, let's see, we talked about the death of Muhammad. Uh, yeah, uh, sometimes I'll say uh, different uh, translations I used. I actually didn't use any of my own translations. All the translations I used were other scholars, they I would try to find either a translation into English and or Urdu, so I could then use that. Uh, it's not mine, get it verified. Uh, references uh, for Dr. Wood's work. So Dr. Uh, Wood doesn't bring the exact each hadith when he talks about Muhammad's epilepsy. That's again not a problem because I brought them all in my presentation, so that's okay. Uh, and yeah, at the end of the day, uh, Muslims still have to explain. Like Ali Rizvi said, why would God kick Muhammad in the nuts every time he had to give him revelation? Why would he make him snort, with color change, fall on the ground, convulse, tremble, have a feverish state, uh, lip smacking, foaming at the mouth? Why is that necessary, right? Yeah, anyways, I think uh, we have another. I think on that, we will end. Something's wrong with his mic anyways. And uh, I think we did a good job and we've gone over two hours now. Uh, you've summarize it well i think we've we've done a, an amazing job on the series uh the slides will be released as soon as we can we'll let you guys know we're just gonna figure that out soon and um yeah we'll look forward to the next live show any any final words gondal uh not really just that it was amazing doing the series uh, amazing support from you guys uh like what 20-ish hours of content it's uh, without you guys i mean keeping me going uh motivated as well so thank you a lot thank you a lot for your support uh share this far and wide uh these hadiths and everything there for you guys to use uh now you guys know how deep how strong case is it's uh you can add so much more to it you can add more references like i said what i got was just what i could access off of uh online sources or my university library but there is so much more that i just even on google i'll show up and you can't buy the book or the book hasn't been scanned in you have to buy it from the middle east there's so many more references you can find uh uh lots more to add but again this does attack islam at its core in a very unique way and I hope the Muslims, when they do try to object to it, they don't straw man like they did the last time. And I hope that me showing how Farid was straw manning serves them as an example to remember not to do that. Because uh, I've been noticing on Twitter already that has started where there's people saying, 
Muhammad never heard the sound of ringing bells or uh, Muhammad never fainted. There's stuff like this. That's just like, guys, just watch the series. You're... So I would recommend people that before criticizing the series, watch it in full because there's a lot of overlapping evidence and connected dots that you've had to take into consideration. Let's say if you watch just part two or part one and you stop the series, then you're missing out on the chunk of his symptoms that occur in part three, four, and five that are very relevant to, to his epilepsy. So, you know, like if you started critiquing part one without watching the, the, the rest of the parts, you might end up making straw mans and arguments that are already addressed in the later parts. So definitely watch it all. It's very, very deep, very thorough. Um, uh, share it. We will release the slides. I might add some more content to it, some more commentary each every slide, because not all the slides have commentary, as you notice. And sometimes I leave this space on the sides, but because through time limitations and I was speaking uh, anyways, it was redundant. Uh, I will also release uh, copied scanned uh, scans of Dr. Dede's book and then Dr. Abbas Sadegiyan's full book. So you're basically getting two uh, full books along to go with these 450-ish slides. Uh, but yeah, uh, so much evidence. It was it was fun doing this. Uh, keep sharing it, and uh, that's all from my side. Alrighty. All right. Thanks, everyone. And uh, have a good day or good night, wherever you are. And uh, we'll see you in the next uh, next show, next uh, two Abdullahs. Bye for now.